You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since to another episode of the GGTMC. We are back. We are live. Uh, I've had America's Answer to the Pastry, the Pop-Tart, this morning. <laughs> so, so. And uh, certainly we should uh, we should say he is 223, I am 663. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Yes. <laughs> we'll be referring to each other by numbers for the rest of the day. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, we are back. Uh, this week we have a... Uh, well, a special episode uh, programmed by uh, Diabolic DVD. I'll go ahead and let you mention what we're covering since this is your programming, basically. Okay. And before I forget, because there's a strong possibility I would forget, uh, let's not forget that today is Peter O'Brien's birthday. Yes. So a big that. happy birthday to Peter <laughs> O'Brien, the stabilizer himself. Uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, as for the episode we're covering today, uh, the films we're covering today, we're covering two uh, two very, very interesting films uh, from Asia, um, as picked by me, obviously. Uh, the first one is Chunking Express. Um, of course, directed by Wong Kar Wai, his, his seminal 90s film, uh, specifically from 1994, uh, about uh, two love-struck police officers. And there's the alarm that I didn't need to have set. Um... And uh, the second film is one that uh, came to us through Third Window Films, uh, and that is Confessions of a Dog from 2006. So there we have it. Nice. So that is what we are covering this week. Uh, We'll see what we've been watching. So um, again, I'll defer to you. Okay. Wish I had had more Pop-Tarts. Yeah, I wish I had Pop-Tarts, period. (laughs) Wish I had more milk. Yes. Um, okay, so, yeah, last week, uh, I got a good jump on the week, but then, of course, I fizzled down the stretch. Uh, we watched the new Winnie the Pooh movie, uh, clearly for the kids. Not that there's anything wrong with Winnie the Pooh, he's, he's quite a class act, uh, usually delivers the goods, and this was no exception. Uh, it's, it's a pretty short film, it's about 50 minutes, so I think it's a good length for young children. Yeah. 
Um, it's traditional animation, which wins points with me, and it's just it's very sweet, much like you know, and sincere, which I find a lot of Winnie the Pooh stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would hi highly recommend that for fans of uh, Pooh or uh, for fans of I maybe I should have said Winnie the. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> might get some different fans turn tuning in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt, man. Um, or just fans of you know wanted to get a film that your kids aren't going to want to walk away from because it's not like Cars Two where it's two hours long. It's it's fifty minutes. It's a good All length. Right. All right. Uh, next up was my wife's choice, and we watched Limitless, the Bradley Cooper vehicle. Mm. Um, visually, it had a few things going on, but it, it just seems almost like a, like a modern age kind of wet dream. It, it's someone who can who basically they can tap into more of the brain. They can do more things at once. They can. It's almost like we can tweet, we can Facebook, we can do this, we can get rich, we can do this, we can do that, all at the same time, and. Uh, the character in this to say does some things that are pretty unsavory and naturally there is no repercussions for anything he does mm -hmm. uh, De Niro's good in it of course um, you know he, he has some good moments but it's 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 not very good it's it's okay it's not the worst thing I've seen but who directed that movie uh, Burger Neil Neil, Neil uh, Burger maybe Neil Burger yes okay it was yeah, the second film. So, you know, it's worth a watch because there are a few things going on visually, and Cooper's not terrible in it, but I'm not a big fan of Cooper. It's not that he's untalented. I just uh, can't get behind the guy. Yeah, no, understood. He always, he, he always, I'll have to give him this. If there's anything, I don't, I don't really care for him either. I mean, I think, you know, he's fine, but, you know, he's not really, like, you know, when he, a movie of his comes out, it's not like I'm going to, you know, rush to see it. But I've always thought, you know, he, he does the, uh, he does the, uh, what, the, the pompous asshole. He does that so well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He does it. You're right. He wears a suit and plays a pompous asshole quite well. <laughs> he does that. He does it quite well. Yes. That's why he was perfect as uh, Templeton Peck yes. in uh, <laughs> yes. a man known as Face in a team. So yeah. So he. Yeah. Uh, and I also have to give him some credit. He does have, uh, as my wife says, he has he has very nice hair. Oh, so they say I'm not really down with curly, but you know, again, teach their own. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he can speak French fluently, which I guess gets some points. I don't want to turn this into a love fest for <laughs> for the guy because I don't really like him. But I heard him on uh, like some Larry King type show in France, and uh, his English his French is flawless. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's yeah. So there you go. Um, next up was a Canadian film that I'd had some cautiously high hopes for. Uh, Strength Peter Stormare. It's about a police officer investigating a mysterious murder in his small northern Ontario town. Ontario is, of course, the province that I live in uh, here in Canada. And it starts Peter Stormare. And I was saying to someone, I think it was Brian from Hammy, from Hammockus, and even Chris on Cool Cat, that the film is really self-satisfied. Like, you can tell the director thought, oh, I'm on to something here. Like, he felt like he really was content to suck himself off. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt like with, like, he, you know, he does a few slow motion things that you can tell he thinks work fantastically but it's nothing we haven't seen before um the soundtrack it it features some cr pretty grating like east coast like newfie i don't know drinking music and he again he thinks it's fantastic and some of the the scouting locations he thinks look great and they're not as as dazzling as he thinks it's an okay movie but i think this this director is far more confident than he had any business to be a little too showy for his own good mm. you know so disappointing not 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 loathsome or anything, but disappointing. Uh, next up, we watched X Men First Class, which was a fairly good comic book film in this day and age. When I'm pretty worn out on them, uh, I would say, as everyone has been saying, Fassbender's sublime in it. 
Uh, Bacon's quite good in it. I think most of the cast acquit themselves quite well. Um, in the film, I think they, they do themselves a favor by you know taking place in the 60s and the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything else. I like the first half of the film better than the second half when they get into, what's it called? Is it the Blackbird or what's the name of their ship? Is it Lockheed? Uh, yeah. Blackbird. Some, something like that. I don't know. I think Lockheed was Shadowcat's pet dragon. Maybe <laughs> that's where geeking out now. Um, <laughs> I think you're right about the pet dragon named Lockheed, yes. It's been yeah. a while since I've done anything uh, X-Men. I'm not the world's biggest X-Men guy. Just, I never have been. Might be yeah, blasphemy to some of my comic book friends, but uh, just not a big one. Yeah, no, I was, I was a pretty big one. There's a few characters in there I didn't know, like Azizel, who's Nightcrawler's dad. and You know, the film, I think the first half's quite good. The second half, um, when they're fighting and taking on uh, Sebastian Shaw and everyone. <clears throat> it, for me, it wasn't quite as good, but it's still a very good uh, uh, comic book film. Mm-hmm. Um, then I watched uh, actually a really good, really short documentary on Netflix Instant called Home Movie. It's about five different people who have very unique homes. One guy lives on a houseboat in Louisiana and hunts alligators. One guy, one couple lives in like an abandoned missile, missile silo. Uh, two people retrofit their house to to cater entirely to their cats. Huh. It's um, another co- another woman lives in literally the most inaccessible part of the world, which happens to be in um, Hawaii. She's an older woman, and it's just it, it just these people kind. Of, and one guy, you know, his house is he he does it rigs it up with with technology technology. Like he'll have one room in his house rotate, and uh, <laughs> it's just really interesting. Um, that doesn't talk down to the subject of these people and their quirks. I, I thought it was really good, actually. I quite enjoyed it. I would highly recommend it. It's only maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minutes long at the most. Huh. Um, really good stuff. And fun. Oh, two more. I'm sorry, very quickly. Nick Nolte, No Exit, which is a documentary where Nick Nolte, amongst other people, uh, no, Nick Nolte interviews Nick Nolte, um, and other people talk about Nick Nolte. Uh, pretty good stuff. Nolte, of course, is, is a favorite of ours. And uh, he, he opens himself up to some pretty honest uh, assessments of, of some things in his life. So another one that was on Instant here in Canada. And finally, I watched Captain Clegg, a.k.a. Night Creatures, which is a Hammer film. And you can hear my thoughts on that on this week's episode of Hammerkiss. Uh, we had a great time recording with Ryan. So oh, nice. that's what I've watched. Uh, what have you watched this week, friend? So the uh, the GGTMC's branching out. We're on all kinds of shows this week. Eh? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so I watched uh, I watched a few things. I got a few things, uh, a couple extra things in. Not not a whole lot, but you know what you can, what I can get. You know, I'm always happy to get right. So I watched um, now these two films. I watched for uh, Sin Awesome, which I'm on this week uh, with uh, Rufus and uh, James over there. So check them out, sinawesome.com. I watched uh, Who'll Stop the Rain. Speaking of Nick Nolte, uh, so Nick Nolte, Michael Moriarty. Tuesday Weld joint with a little oh uh, nice with a That's little a cast. yeah with a little uh, uh, what's the name of that one guy the one guy we were joking around with with Miles when we were doing the uh, Kiss Meets the Family of the Park it was a uh, guy that always played the bad guy in those 70s movies I can't remember he was in he played the Phantom in Kiss Meets the Family of the Park but Oh gosh, I can't remember. His Zerba, name. Anthony Zerba, Anthony Zerba. That's right, Zerby. that's right. Anthony Zerbi, Anthony Zerbi, <laughs> Zerbi. Yeah, and he's from the Long, Long Beach native. <laughs> yeah, he's a Long Beach. You know, a lot of Anthony's in Long Beach, as I said. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but he was in it and stuff. So, and, and you know, they had uh, Richard Masur and Ray Sharkey's in it. So it's 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 a good movie, man. Uh, I'd never seen it. I'd always wanted to see it. It's just one I never got around to. And uh, Nol- 
Nolte, uh, once again, he, he's very, very solid in it. Uh, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit about Nolte on there and stuff. So, yeah, definitely recommend people check that one out. Really good film. Holy. Need to wake up over there, man. I need to. <laughs> need to turn the snooze off. <laughs> yeah, that snooze gets worked more than any button on the phone, I think. More than the numbers on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also revisited Tigerland for that show, uh, which is the Joel Schumacher film from, uh, I can't believe it's already like 10 years old, 11 years mm-hmm. old. It's amazing to me how that film is, you know, it seems like I just bought it like not too long ago, you know, and I, I bought it 10 years ago. <laughs> That's, That's crazy, man. So I don't know where those 10 years went, but, um, well, I mean, I actually do know where they went, but you know what I'm saying? Figuratively, yeah. I don't really know where the hell they went. But that was fun to revisit and stuff. It's a film I'm a pretty big fan of. It's very, it's very, it's very solid. I forgot, uh, I forgot Michael Shannon was in it, and I forgot. Uh, it's funny, you know, as time goes on, these people move on to other stuff. You forget that sometimes, you know. True. And, and uh, I forgot that Cole Hauser is in it as well. So yeah, he's really, really good in it. So, of course, and Farrell's good, and there's a lot of people. There's actually a lot of people in the movie. So. And like you had said, and I completely have always thought Cole Hauser is criminally underused in Hollywood. He's, he can really bring the intensity. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, I, I, I got a sad feeling that he's going to be like his dad and be... Not that his dad's... A, you know, I mean, Wings Hauser's a great actor, and I don't care what anybody says, but I have a feeling that Hollywood won't know how to use him, just like they don't know how to use Wings, really. No. Except as like the heavy. Mm-hmm. Which is a shame, because Wings is... And, you know, and Cole are both very talented, so... Um, I saw a documentary yesterday called The Curious Case of Kurt Flood. This one is about, um, Kurt Flood, who he's kind of known as the guy who kind of got free agency rolling in baseball. Uh, he's not the first one, but he's kind of known as the guy, African-American ball player, kind of gave up his career to, uh, to sue baseball and try to get them to, uh, you know, get rid of the, the player's clause, which was... Where a team owned you, you didn't have any rights. Really, you got traded. That was the only way you ever played for another team. You didn't get to play for who you wanted to play for. Now, in this modern era of sports, you know everybody gets to do whatever they want. So it's just totally different. So uh, it's kind of you know depending on your taste, it's kind of overblown now free agency. But you know it is what it is. You got to remember these guys only made sixty thousand dollars a year playing baseball, which at the time was a ton of money. But it's kind of funny to look back on that now. Oh, it certainly yeah. is. That's one I wanted to check out. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's very good. It's very interesting, too, because Kurt Flood was a definitely a very flawed individual. And it's always interesting to me that, you know, people can sometimes, you know, fight for something, but, you know, they, they have a hard time, you know, figuring out their own life. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. I always like that. You know, it shows the very human side of, of Kurt Flood. So. Uh, and then finally, I watched uh, outside of the films for the show, I watched uh, Cinna, which is the uh, documentary on Ayrton Cinna. The Formula One racing guy uh, did, uh, for Brazil. Did you, uh, were you ever a, uh, I don't know if you're, I mean, we've never talked to Formula One, so I doubt you're a Formula One fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I was certainly aware of Senna um, in the 90s because of the Sega Genesis game. Ah, yes, yes, yes. I think everybody who doesn't really watch, <laughs> doesn't really watch Formula One racing is aware of that game. Yes, I remember that game as well. It's funny you mentioned that. That's the way I was aware of him because I saw the name and I was like, I know that name from somewhere. And then I started putting it together. Yeah. Um, this is a really, really good documentary. And it's, it's definitely so far one of my favorite films of the year. What, what they've done is they've taken all existing footage, really, and, um, and uh, used interviews and everything so there's no and there, there's only there's some audio that's modern but they use all existing footage from the past so 
uh, it's really well crafted documentary and uh, very good. So I mean, even if you're not into Formula One racing, uh, I think you'll uh, you'll really like it uh, because uh, I'm not really into Formula One racing. I mean, I just I can't get into it. You know, it's just something that it doesn't televise well for me. And I think those guys are extremely talented, but Jesus, I, I can't get into it. You know, and I could never drive a car that fast. They do a lot of. Uh, cockpit shots now, I call it cockpit because that's what it looks like they're so far down inside the car and everything it's just insane watching these guys drive and Senna was one of the uh, he's notorious he was notorious for uh, being one of the faster more uh, more loose guys on the track oh yeah yeah he I mean he's a real aggressive driver so um, it's very interesting and uh, definitely uh, definitely check that one out yeah and I, I recommend you check that out too Will because I think you'll like it quite a bit it's one that I saw the trailer for on Apple a few months ago, and immediately I thought, this is what I'm going to see before the end of the year. Um, yeah, and I am definitely going to see it before the end of the year, because like we've often said, the mark of a great documentary is that you don't have to be into Formula One racing or pet cemeteries or anything else. As long as it's crafted well, you can find interest in the subject. Yes, interest, and also, you know, you learn a lot, and that's the thing. I mean, I learned a lot about uh, Formula One racing, a lot of stuff I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I learned about the importance of uh, you know pole position and how that part of the track has better grip than the other parts of the track, so it, it's it's key. And I, I didn't know any of that shit. I mean, just, it's, yeah. Sorry, speaking of great uh, games, how about pole position for Commodore sixty four, brother? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When I was a kid growing up, I played a ton of pole position, like in the arcades. I mean, we would go and uh, we go to this arcade and. Uh, they don't, you know, they had that set down pole position game, and we we played. I just thought it was the most amazing game. It's so funny in retrospect. You see, oh, yeah. you see pole position now, and how, how, uh, I don't know, and and antiquated it looks. I mean, it looks like, oh. it's, like it's like it's like a couple of sprites moving on the screen. That's about it, you know. It was amazing yeah. back in the day. <laughs> no, it was just like it was amazing. I can't believe this game. Well, that's like I remember when I saw Double Dragon for the first time in the arcade. It was like a fucking. Just like it, just it, it shattered every yeah. expectation. I mean, these graphics are so amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know it's funny. That, that that reminds me when I talked about uh, Tron Legacy. The one thing I really liked, one of the things I really liked in the beginning, is I love that uh, Kim going into that arcade and getting the jukebox going. And of course, just playing Journey separate ways. And I can actually remember being in an arcade as a kid and playing games and hearing that song while I was playing games. <laughs> That's awesome. Because it was popular at the time, you know, and I was even playing the Journey game at the time. You know, the, the, I forget what it was called. I think it was just called the Journey game or whatever, but <laughs> crazy. Anyway, that's just a go back to last week, but uh, the week, yeah, week four, or two weeks ago. I don't know how long ago, whatever. But, uh, yeah, that's all I watched. Uh, hopefully I'll get some more stuff in next week. I'm, I'm up to almost 150 films this year, which, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot lower than last year, but I still can't believe I've seen that many. It's amazing to me. With, with the schedule, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, so. I'm very happy if if I finish the year at 300 or you know right under 300, I'd be I'd be I'll be very happy. But I think I'll finish at three though. That's almost a movie a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's Jesus. That's more than enough. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. So uh, that is that. So what do we want to cover first here? Going net. What do you want to cover first? You uh, you just said. Let's do uh, let's do Confessions of a Dog first. Let's go ahead and do that one. That's what I was going to say. All right, nice. That's uh, why we do a show. <laughs> yes. <So. laughs> All right. All right. We'll be back right after this. Are you looking for a way to connect with people who like the things that you like? Whether it's music, movies, TV, or whatever you're into, head on over to the palaver.com forums. <laughs> yes, yes, but, but forums and message boards are elitist and archaic. 
Well, yeah, maybe if you're an asshole. Palaver.com is home to all your favorite podcasts. So why not head over there now? Start talking about all the things you want to talk about. That's Palaver.com. P-A-L-A-V-R.com. I didn't fade that out. That just ended. So there we go. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Are you there, Will? Oh, I am here. I was, again, the, the old laugh while I have the volume turned down <laughs> trick. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I guess I forgot to fade that break out. Oh, well, that's staying in. So, hey, there you go. After 140-something nice. episodes, I still can't get it right every time. So <laughs> That's what I get for making uh, breaks when I'm tired. So there we go. Yeah, it's bound to happen. <laughs> But uh, uh, I just want to say, I want to put this out there. Uh, did you like that piece of music? Uh, yes, it reminded me of the uh, Fleet Foxes a little bit. Fleet Foxes, a little bit of Neil Young. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's a group called Colossal Gospel. And I got to tell everyone, you know, uh, oh, I just want to rep for AquariumDrunker.com. I find so much fantastic, diverse music through that website. Um, nice. I, I highly encourage everyone to go. Check uh, check that site out, man. Because a lot of the music we find, if it's not, you know, stuff that we already know or funky old soul and stuff that, and even some funky old soul comes from that site. So yeah, highly recommend it. Mm. Definitely have to look into that. Um, okay, so our first film is Confessions of a Dog from uh, 2006, directed by. Hopefully, I say his name right. It shouldn't be too hard. I just said uh, Gene Takahashi. Again. Again. Gene. It's actually hard. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just call him Gene. Hey, Gino. Hey, Gino. <laughs> uh, yeah, but again, Takahashi. There we go. <laughs> G G Tizzle. Yeah, the G Tizzle. Takahashi Shizzle. Well, that was yeah. nice. <laughs> also, I must be said that Colossal Gospel is not as easy to say as you would think it would be. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not. <laughs> After you said it, I was like, wow, that's not easy to say. I don't even know if I'm going to attempt it. Colossal Gospel. <laughs> that's one of those things that if I had have paused, given pause to think about it, I would have totally tripped over it. It's like a cold pool. You just got to fucking dive in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, good old Gene here. He directed uh, yeah, <laughs> Confessions of a Dog. <laughs> Oh no! Hey, what a morning. Uh, okay, so this film uh, it doesn't have a plot synopsis, but essentially, my synopsis of the film is this is a very um, gritty kind of intriguing tale of uh, police in uh, Japan and okay, okay, corruption. A lot of corruption in the film, and I really, I really that's just the best way to describe it. I mean, it's it's an epic to say the least. It's three hours plus. Um, so I'm curious as to what you thought about it because. Uh, I was going one way and then ended up another way, so I'm, I'm curious as where how you felt about it. So let's just kind of get into it here. Let's do it. No, 
full disclosure, this film would have wouldn't have been on my radar if it hadn't been for a chance encounter uh, with Coffin John of V Cinema. Yes, was here for the wonderful Japanese film festival run by Chris McGee and the gang Shinsidai Film Festival, which just passed. Um, this film played there last year. I happened to meet up with Chris, who, like you said, who is the man behind Shinsidai and John for a couple pints uh, last year before they went to see House 2 uh, at the Blur Cinema here. And uh, um, John had said to me, Will, he goes, you know, Confessions of a Dog. He goes, uh, I saw this. I, I can't really talk too much in terms of DVD or anything because I don't know what's going on. But um, in saying that, this is totally in your guys' wheelhouse. It's about you know, the police and corruption, and it's about three hours long, but it doesn't feel that long. So <clears throat> from that moment on, I thought, wow, this does sound great. Um, and finally, uh, we saw the third window, one of the best um, boutique labels putting out Asian film or, or any sort of non-Hollywood films, decided to put out a, a really fantastic two-disc set um, that includes, it's limited to a 1,000 copies, mm -hmm. and it's region two, it should be said, Um they have like a film cell that they put in each uh, each DVD, and because yeah, they're two discs, one discs all the special features and so forth. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it did seem daunting, admittedly, a runtime of 195 minutes. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we watch a lot of show movies for the show and stuff, and it's always kind of tough when you watch movies that, uh, you know, I mean, it, three hour movies are three hour movies. I don't care what the where they're made from, what country, whatever. I mean, three hour movies is tough when you. Don't have a lot of time and everything else, so it was a little intimidating. But uh, it it really it really didn't feel like three hours. I have to admit. I that. agree. I totally agree with that. Um, I think we have to give a little bit of background here in terms of the film from the standpoint of um, as I shuffle around my notes like an asshole. <laughs> um, this film was banned. It's, it actually was was made in 2006. Mm -hmm. It was banned. No theater or DVD label in Japan would touch it because uh, it deals with, with police corruption and really has a pretty... It shows the police in a very negative light. Um, in Japan, the police are really revered uh, and, and almost... <clears throat> that is an untouchable, saintly thing. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of pride in their police, you know, without, without having any corruption, etc. So... This thing had to be distributed of Hong Kong, so you have to kind of understand the reverence for the police in Japan to understand how daunting a task it was for uh, our buddy Gino to put out. Uh, <laughs> and again, we know it's Gen, but we're <laughs> just having fun with it. Yeah, um, I mean, I called him Gene, so you know, might as well, have, might as well just call him Gino. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a few of the police officers in in Japan wanted to call him Mean Gene after this. <laughs> yeah. I stepped on a few toes along the way. Yeah. Um, and I know at first he'd had the police's full cooperation, and I think they saw some footage and thought, not anymore, Gino. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's. I think you kind of have to understand the context that the film was released in and, and whatnot. Um, this film's shot on video, but it, it's shot really well, and, and they have kind of like a filter on the video that gives it almost like a 70s look, which I think is, is certainly in line with with the film, because let's face it, you know, a lot of the police stuff and the coverage and stuff, whether it's Serpico which I know people have talked about in comparison to this film, you, it really does hearken to that stuff. Yeah, it, it, it really reminds me of the uh, the cop stuff from the 70s, uh, French Connection, Serpico, you know, that kind of stuff. So if you're into that kind of stuff, I think you'll totally be into this kind of movie because that's what it totally feels like, too. It's, it's, it's an epic movie, but it's not... It doesn't scream big budget. I mean, there's not a lot of, like, gigantic action set pieces or stuff like that. There's just a lot more intrigue and things like that. I mean, 
I don't remember a lot of big action pieces at all in the film, actually, now that I think about it. but No, and it doesn't seem, and this isn't a critique of it, but it never seems sweeping. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It just seems almost, they shot it almost in like 70s documentary style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, sort of feels, you know, more matter of fact than it does this sweeping epic drama that crosses generational lines and, you know, it, it doesn't feel that. But, uh, you know, admittedly, we kind of see what the film's going to be about because it gives a decidedly unglamorous uh, insight into police because we see some police that are, including our, our principal, um, Shun Sugata, when he's, he's, a, he's a, like a uniform beat officer. Yeah. Um, really bored. And they're just some of the, the schemes they pull to, to talk to women, etc. And we see that, yeah, it's really not the, the superhero job when you're lower ranking uh, early on. Just some of the little, little things they do that are a bit unsavory. And he's actually a policeman that should be said early on is, is quite, quite the white knight, so to speak. He, he's, he's a good man. He's yeah. a family. By the book kind of guy. Takata, Takata, is that how you say his name? Takata or Takeda? Takeda, yep. Takeda. I have to say, uh, Shun Sagata, uh, I kept thinking, where have I seen this guy? I know I've seen him somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I had to go through his filmography, uh, sadly. But, you know, I mean, I don't, he's not a real familiar actor to me. No. Uh, he was one of the bosses in Kill Bill. So yep. I found that out. But also, I have to say, this film. I, I'm really going to be on the lookout. I'm going for more of his stuff because this is a, for me. I don't know how you felt about this, but I, I'm going to mention this now. This is a, a hell of a performance. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he carries this whole movie on his shoulders. His very broad shoulders. It must be at. He's a rather large man. He uh, is compared he to had the a great rest, look and yeah. a great. Yeah, if they ever made an Akira Kurosawa biopic, they should cast Shun Sagata. <laughs> he does have the same kind of um, lines in his mouth and the way his nose is. You're right. Like I mean, a young, a, certainly a younger Kurosawa. And the way he wears those glasses. Like yeah, when, once he totally, starts, totally. When he start wearing those glasses, man, he really reminded me of Kurosawa a lot. But, but he, uh, yeah, he. I mean, this is a powerhouse performance. I mean, this is the kind of performance that you would get from something like Serpico or the French Connection or something like that in the '70s. I mean, that, that he he really shoulders the burden of this whole movie and uh there's some just amazing 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 moments he pulls off in this film i mean it's it's i was stunned i was i was uh, i was shunned i should say (laughs) (laughs) nice well done well done or well shunned yeah well shunned shunned. uh yeah no he's a guy that he's he's a real real solid character actor from japan i've seen him in a lot of stuff like you said he's worked in some american things say last samurai as well yeah um i know him from pulse uh, Cairo. Um, he's worked with Takashi Miki a couple times. He worked. He's worked with um, Beat Takashi a few times. I've seen him in a few films with him. So oh, he's in, yeah, more he's, of a. I've seen him in a lot of stuff. He's in Ichi the Killer too. And yep, so. absolutely. So yeah, he's he, he works. He's he's a working actor. Uh, and it seems like a lot of this cast are because there's a few familiar faces, but no one that I'd seen a lot of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in Japanese cinema. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Takeda really does have a great face and, and a great look, and he was able to really carry the film. Oh, yeah. And let's face it, if you don't run a film for 195 minutes, you better have a lead that can get, and pick up the ball and run, and, and he certainly can. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like the transformation of his character, too, because like you said in the beginning, he's very, by the book, he's very much a white knight-type character and stuff. And and it's not a giveaway of any type of, or spoiler. I mean, you know, he, he develops through the film. I'm not going to give away the details, but he develops through the film. And, and what I like about it is is... They they age him well without giving him gray hair makeup or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. They, he ages well through like stress. 
So it's, it's, yes. it's very interesting. Yeah, because he gets a lot of balls in the air near the end of the uh, the film. Um, the film, and I don't mean this as a critique, it, it's an observation. And it serves the firm film well because it is the meat that's on the bones is 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 there. Um, there's not too many sort of stylistic flourishes or, or soundtrack, uh, like not much in the way of music, as it were. But it's funny early on when when uh, Takeda is moving up the the police ladder, they they have almost like the the standard '70s police montage with it shows you know a foot chase, a fast food stakeout, uh, oh, yeah. you know yeah. these sort of things that are very commonplace when you see montages with police officers uh, in the '70s. Right. Um, Oh, speaking of the '70s, man. Early on, Takeda decides he 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 pulls in a page right out of Serpico's book and he rocks the little toque <laughs> or toboggan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what I'm saying. He look he looks great in everything he wears. You know? Yeah, where's the trench? Where's the trench coat for a good part of the film? It's the glasses and stuff like those square kind of Buddy Holly esque kind of yeah. glasses. I love the way he eats too. He, he's like kind of as he as he gets along, he, he's constantly eating. It seems. Yeah. Oh, it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It might have been his thing. Um, there's talk early on, and they don't stay on this as much as maybe they could have, especially considering the runtime. But you'll hear me talk about this being a critique a little bit later on, something that's tied in with it. But interesting, the term bokutaku, which um, talks about a debt that newspapers have to the public and that's Bokutaku means to guide the public it, it's that mm-hmm. as a moral compass yes because some people are trying they, they are aware of, of some of the uh, unsavory things the police are doing and they say no we can't we can't do this we have to you know show our police as being upstanding and, and everything else so it, interesting to see a little bit of a different uh, spin on the uh, the duty of, of a newspaper is yeah. beyond just selling newspapers at the time. It's almost the, the opposite of, of what you would see in, in American films of the time with, you know, I got a hot scoop. Let's <laughs> get this out there. Um, what's this? Oh, another thing they, they bang on, because this, this looks at Takeda, but we look at Takeda as, I don't want to say a victim uh, in all this, because he certainly was, it was a, a willing participant. But I think... Beyond it being an indictment of one man, it's it's an indictment of a system and and a critique on uh, the, the shortcomings of human nature sometimes within the confines of that system. Meaning greed and and people being self serving and and strong hints of nepotism uh, throughout the film in this uh, this uh, industry or this um, profession. Meaning police. Right, yeah. I mean, it deals with the, you know, it's always tough to talk about this subject because, you don't, I mean, I know where I would fall, but, you know, I mean, ultimately, probably people can find flaws in anybody's character. Uh, I really like, uh, I really like that the, you know, the way they, they establish Takeda as this, he's a family man. He wants to be a family man. Uh, he's very proud to be a family man and stuff. It's really heart, you know, heart touching for me now. A touching moment where you know he brings home a little stuffed animal for his mm-hmm. little daughter and stuff you know while she's asleep and stuff now saying that he does have some serious serious flaws that make him you know they show both sides of the coin here so the, the, there's that including the scene where he's taking what has to be 
and I'm going to say this because it has to be the most insane oh. bubble bath in the history of cinema. It is. It absolutely <laughs> is. And I wouldn't be drinking or eating anything in that bathtub. <laughs> no, he was when he was drinking and eating. He was eating more bubbles than he was food or drink. <laughs> Yeah, that beard it wasn't as frothy as he thought it was. It was yeah. he was eating uh, bubbles. And you know, he comes to find out that you know why he's messing around. This girl, he, he it's not a spoiler. He's the kind of girl he keeps on the side. She's only sixteen years old, and he's like, "Oh, no wonder you're so fresh," or something. He says to her, and you know, it's oh, like well, he says something a lot crasser than that because yeah. you know what they do? They play that scene one where they think that because at this point we're still behind him as, as our moral compass because mm, yeah. he finds out how young this goes. He goes, 16? Yeah. And there's a pause. And you think he's going to go, he's going to give her the whole sermon of, you got to get off the streets. You're too young for this. And he says, that's why you taste good. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So yeah, goes back to the food thing for Takeda. So. <laughs> yeah, he was tasting bubbles, I guess, in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of taste, how about menthol cigarettes? I don't care if, if my boss... <laughs> smoke them or not, menthols are fucking awful. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I don't smoke. I haven't smoked in a long time. I remember uh, I've had a few menthols in my day. Um, I know people who get hooked on menthol cigarettes. It's it seems like it's like doubly hard for them to get off of cigarettes. Ugh. It seems like it's an added uh, an added uh, additive, an added additive, whatever the hell that is, an added <laughs> uh, bit of uh, you know to your addiction to me because uh, chemicals or something. Yeah, yeah, because I know a lot of people that still smoke them, man, and. Uh, you know, they've tried to quit smoking. It seems like they keep smoking them, though. My mom and dad were, uh, or my mom still is, I should say, a menthol smoker. Yeah, that's, it's funny. My dad was, is, was a long-haul trucker, and he smoked a lot of different cigarettes, trying different things and in terms of cigarettes. And he got into the, the Benson and Hedges 100s menthols for a while. Ah, yes. Which, you know, wasn't really a manly cigarette, but I don't know why. He decided to switch to them for some reason. Uh, I don't know why, but... Yeah, and I tried a menthol once, uh, not through him, obviously, but uh, fucking terrible. And a lot of my Asian female friends smoke menthols. Yeah. And, uh, can't get down with the menthols. Yeah, I'm not a big fan either, but of course, you know, I don't smoke anymore either, so. No. You're funny, you mentioned yeah. the 100s, you know, not a very uh, manly cigarette. I, I know a lot of times, I'm in my profession, I deal with a lot of truck drivers, and mm-hmm. a lot of them smoke 100s. And I think it has to do with the duration of the cigarette, maybe. You you nailed it. I think that's what it is as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, as, you, as, yeah. as you know from experience, a short you can puff through pretty quick. Oh yeah, you power through. Especially American cigarettes. Your guys, they <laughs> yeah. seem to pack the tobacco looser, and the paper they use is a bit different. Hence yeah. the reason your guys smell funky to us Canadians. Yes. <laughs> um, they really have a funk, funk to them, man. No offense, but uh, but ours are packed tighter. But yeah, they they your guys, man, fucking Marlboro Silver, man, like or red, whatever. It uh, man, you go through that thing quick, like three four minutes if you really power in that cigarette. <laughs> if you're if you're millioning it. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, but uh, back to uh, Takeda and, and family. It, we see too that you know Japan is a very patriarchal society, and I think it deals with the theme of the betrayal of trust in a patriarchal society because police are very much patriarchal figures. Right, they're a moral compass, mm-hmm. and we see that Takeda acts as the literal patriarch of his family as well as as being part of this patriarchal. Uh, face or figure, uh, meaning the police officers, and and so much that his boss, who he again comes into the whole patriarchal thing, offhandedly says, "Oh, you should call your daughter Nana. That was my first love's name." To the point where he, to impress his boss, names his daughter 
After, and the wife's like, fuck that. And it goes back and forth. He goes, no, we're naming her Nana. And that's the, that was to it. And it just kind of shows the influence and the pull that that the superiors have for reasons of, like I said, being in a patriarchal society and also just trying to climb up the ladder. Yeah, I also like the scene later where uh, the wife decides that she doesn't like that. And she goes ahead and puts her foot down and names her. Hey guys, she, leaves, she leaves the birth certificate out or something. Yes. She's like, you know, fuck that shit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I don't know how you say that in Japanese, but that's how we say it down here in the South. Fuck that shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Um, I like that the police, the, I shouldn't say like, I, 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 fuck it. I liked in the film the convention of when a policeman wanted to do things that weren't by the book and someone would say to them, hey, you're a police officer. Why did you do this? And you'd go, I'm off duty. Oh, yeah. I'm off duty. Yeah, I mean, I could do this and I could work outside the rules a little bit because I'm an off duty police officer. Um, and yet, Takeda, and they don't, I don't think they revisit this as much as maybe they could have. And again, I think you're going to hear when my score comes to full disclosure, I, I quite like this film. But when you have a film running as long as this one does, you can't help but think of ways to maybe that you would change things a little bit. And there's a few things. One of them would be there's a few times when he, um, you see him writing in a journal. There's a fantastic line when he says, I sometimes have to do what's called dirty work. Yeah. This is when he's still climbing up the ladder, and then it cuts to five years later, and, and we kind of know what that means, that he's had to get his hands dirty many times to move himself up the uh, the ladder. So I like that, especially with something they, they could have used, not even necessarily for exposition, but I I just feel like it was something they, they used a few times, and they could have used it a little bit more. Yeah. That's that's the usually when they do the uh, whenever they do the black card the five years later or twenty minutes later or whatever it could be uh, a lot of movies you know you don't really get to see a change in the actor I think what Shin Sagata does really well is he totally changes his posture and other things uh, after that title card like he's he's like a totally different character when you come when you come back to him yeah five years later so you get to see all the stuff he's done without actually seeing what he's done you can see it all on his face all in his posture all in you know. His demeanor—you can see what kind of a character he's turned into, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting because, uh, you know, a lot of films I think of this length would have just shown everything. They would have done a montage, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's give true. us give us a rock song, you know, maybe, and I mean, even somebody as great as Scorsese probably would have done a montage. Yeah, you know, that's a, that. But this, they just give you the title card, and I think that's the way title cards should be used. And, you know, five years later, and boom, you're right back in it. Yeah, no, for sure. And you're right, just little things by changing his posture and his clothes a little bit and, and whatnot, it really does, does uh, give us that, that it, it gives us the, the thing that he's aged and also gives us the fact that because now he's a bit hunched over, he's a bit broken, whether it's you know spiritually, morally, and physically, mm-hmm. the stuff he's had to do. Um, another thing I like when it jumps to five years ahead is it introduces some other characters and without banging you over the head with it, it really becomes that thing that it's all full circle and now we see a new set of uniformed kind of patrolmen in maneuvering through the system as as small fries and getting away with small fry things in the scheme of things. But we can see the cycle start again with a new a new generation of, of police a new class of police officers. And I like that it was again it was um Takahashi's very specific uh, critique of of the this isn't just uh, Takeda's group. This is uh, the system that we work in. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, man, 
my stomach's upset from a fucking bag of popcorn still, dude. Um, <laughs> hey, that was that was an off the off air conversation. Will and his, his fascination with popcorn, uh, folks. Once he starts a bag, he doesn't stop. Yeah, it was terrible, man. <laughs> I I was saying off the air. We have a company, President's Choice, here. Really good quality. They started as, as um, a higher quality but lower priced version of, of a lot of products. And this is totally off topic. But they put out uh, a kettle corn popcorn, which is a combination of sweet and salty. I'm more of a salty guy, but it's a perfect <laughs> blend between salty and sweet. And, man, I just went to the fucking bag like Cookie Monster goes through cookies. I was like, the, the, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> just fucking powering this bag. And uh, I finished it, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here we are, uh, nine or ten hours later, and I'm still feeling it. But anyway, um, it's one of the quotes in this film that, that harkens to what I talked about when I first opened the review is, is um, Takeda says to someone in Japan, there are two things you should never try to oppose, the emperor and the police. Yeah. Which kind of gives you, again, some insight into the, the psyche or the, uh, the, the, the thought or the, the sentiment of, of the Japanese people. Well, not only that, but you get a lot of scenes where, you know, like even standard beat cops will talk to people and stuff, and you can see that people are intimidated by the cops. And not that they're a bunch of bullies and stuff, but that respect is there. Like, you know, if they ask you something, you know, you answer. You know, if they tell you to come somewhere, you go. And the cops, some of the cops, those beat cops especially, they kind of use it to their advantage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yep. you, you can see that respect's there. Not, not Probably not the same respect they give to the emperor, but still, it's there that... You know, people are, you know, slightly nervous around, you know, cops. I think it's a it's a cultural thing almost everywhere, except I don't think, you know, like for me, I'm not really scared of them. I'm just, you know, sometimes I have to be, you know, you, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, I've been pulled over for speeding a few times and talked my way out. <laughs> you know, been a little over nice, you know. Yeah. Not offered any sexual favors or anything. <laughs> yeah, guys, you, you squashed, put the kibosh on that. Uh. <laughs> Nice. Uh, but you know, I mean, still, I mean, you, you you try to you know be as nice as possible to open. You know, you don't want to pay, you know, because you'll you'll pay out the ass for some of that stuff. So you don't want to pay for that kind of stuff. So you know, you're like, oh, what was I doing, sir? Excuse me, sir. I'm sorry, sir. You know, that kind of yeah, shit. yeah, for sure. You raise your voice. Oh, hi, officer. Was something wrong back there? <laughs> yeah. Kind of raise your voice up, but yeah. Like you were going, you, you were going 45, and I'm like, oh, I, I didn't feel like 45. No, I, oh no, I'm <laughs> terribly sorry about that. It's, yeah. yeah, no. Do you guys have points for your your driver's license? Yes, yes. Okay, good. So do we. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> not that I guess makes me sleep any better at night. I don't know why, but I just was curious more than anything. Um, and yeah, we see with the with the now that the decade is really becoming a mover and shaker in the police department. He becomes a chief of the police in his um, prefecture, I guess. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm not wrong in saying prefecture. Um, but we see, you know, we see extortion. We see, you know, drugs. We see everything. We see flagrant levels of of entrapment. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a lot of shit, man. A lot of shit that these guys really start to dip their, their fingers into. And um, one of the things, and you know what's interesting is this film really is, is a very, again, coming from some, a society that's very patriarchal, is the fact that I think other than his mistress, his daughter, and his wife, are there any other women in the film? Other than like, you know, in one scene, like a background kind of... No, not really, because most of the other women in the film seem to be like uh, like uh, sexual objects for some of the beat cops. Because mm-hmm. uh, those, those, those couple of beat cops, man, they're always talking about how horny they are. 
Which yeah. I, thought, I thought that was really going to take a dark turn. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised that Takahashi decided to, you know, just kind of keep it as a vocal thing and not try not not go too dark with it. Oh, for sure. Because he could have went really dark with that piece, and I, I thought at one moment I thought it was going to go dark. I thought, oh fuck, this is going to get this is going to get ugly. Yeah, it's going to get nasty now, and but it, it didn't. It went to, it went another way. But uh, yeah, I think the the wife and I mean, there's other characters around, but I think the wife and the uh, the uh, the lover are pretty much it, right? And the daughter, yeah. Oh, and the daughter, yeah, yeah. And even the the bubble bath queen, she only has I think one or, one or two scenes, yeah. maybe two scenes. Yeah. Still laughing about that bubble bath. I've never seen so many bubbles in a bubble oh, bath. Oh, it was insane. Um, one of the lines I liked that I think they had to have meant kind of a in a way that it was specifically about the daughter. It was it was Takeda's wife talking about the daughter, but I think there was a double meaning there because it also applied certainly to. Takeda at this point with with his greed and his corruption and uh, he's not home very often we see him dip into his house bring a gift for the daughter and leave and he's just no time for anything anymore he's too busy working his way up the ladder and the mother or the wife uh, says to him about the daughter he goes you spoil her now she wants everything she sees and I think that can really be applied to Takeda's character now too because he wants everything he sees that, that greed and he's unwittingly instilling it in his daughter by, by telling her it's okay to do things and you're going to get everything you want yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really like that. Uh, this film does also feature the worst drug withdrawals in the history of cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's one scene in particular again with one of those beat cops. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable, man. Look at this hold up in that ratty apartment. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what kind of stuff he's on. Uh, I would guess that was heroin or something. I don't know what he's on, man. But uh, it was almost like you, if you was to walk into that scene, you'd think he was in a different kind of movie. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, it looked like he was doing like you ever seen that dance move? Uh, a lot of breakdancers would do where they would stand still, but it like shake, like like they were like a you know like they really shake fast, like their whole body would shake. It was almost like he was doing that. Yeah, like he was listening to fucking Grandmaster Flash or something, man. But uh, I don't know. Um, what's I don't know what the, I wrote. I wrote old school grudge. Uh, I don't know why I wrote that now. Okay, forget that then. Um, oh, man. Oh, uh, another thing just to, to show you the levels of corruption. When you see like the desk clerks and, and the people that that are just essentially secretaries of the police department involved in the corruption, you realize how deep and how rotten to the core Takahashi, how, how rotten to the core a picture he's painting is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. corruption, you know, if, if it's going to if it's going to kind of uh, instill itself into an organization, it has to go deeper than just like the front lines or something. It has to be it has to be all the way, you know, complicit the, throughout. Yeah. And usually it is. I don't know if you can hear that barking. It's, oh yeah. <laughs> wife's home. Labrad- Labrador's awake. <laughs> Labrador is awake. I again, I will say Labrador is awake. Hey, G- hey Gino. <laughs> hey Gino. <laughs> But yeah, no, I think that you know, the the most successful you know corrupt enterprises are always going to be all the way down to the core. I mean, there's no telling. He only goes so far. It's probably even deeper than that. So, oh, well, we see it as we see even as high as he's become. There's people a lot higher up than him that are pulling the strings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. all one big rat race. One big shit runs downhill as it is with everything. But when the shit runs downhill, it it because of how much shit is running downhill. Uh, a lot of people are going to get messy and dirty along the way. Yeah, yeah, and you know it, it becomes a thing where you know his his mentor, the captain there, he, he 
you know, it's it's one of those things where I'm not going to say that you know it's it's, it's that that kind of corruption is prevalent in, in a lot of things, but you see that you know people the corruption starts out always as personal uh, a gain, really. You know, you want to be you want to make more money. You want to be the big boss. You know, I'm not saying you want to make the money on the side so much, but you want to you want to get a promotion. You know, you want to take care of your family. You want to do these things. People sometimes mm-hmm. will do questionable stuff to get to where they want to be, and uh, oh, yeah. even though they won't talk about it or anything else, I mean, I can tell you that. I've had plenty of experiences where people I've worked for and stuff have done questionable things to get where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. Things that are slightly, they're at least morally gray. They're not so much black and white, but they're definitely like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, <laughs> you know so they'll talk about it, and it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I would have done that. But then you think to yourself, you know, I don't know if I'd have had the opportunity, and it was a life changer. You know, maybe I would have. I don't know. So yeah, it's one yeah, of those no, you're right, man. That's a good way to put it. <clears throat> uh, just a couple more notes here. Um, again, talking about the, I, I've said it a thousand times in this review, but the patriarchal society, I think the line almost becomes bigger than it, it's meant because again, with the, the father and daughter, right? Because the daughter almost represents the Japanese, this wide-eyed, naive trust in, in the, the moral compass of the father or the police. Mm-hmm. And when he says to his daughter, he pats her on the head and he says, not now, daddy's on duty. Yeah. And it just it's, it's heartbreaking. What what kids have brought to me now as a dad in cinema, they they haven't you know of course it adds a different personal touch. But what it's really given to me more now is the the innocence factor. Like I always knew you know the kids are innocent compared to the you know you, you know you hear the quote you know they're paying for the sins of the father blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I see now when I always see kids, I always think about because you know I think about my son. I always think about the innocence. You know they don't know what the world is like yet. Mm-hmm. You know, to them, it's a world of wonder. Everything is great. Every morning is a great morning. Mm-hmm. Every day is a great day. They don't have any conception of how, you know, it, it can go wrong yet. So, you know, that that innocence is there, and uh, that's what I always love about that kind of stuff. You know, it's really a shame that, like I told my wife, you know, it's really a shame. I, I look at my son, and I think, you know, one day he's going to have, you know, that heartbreaking moment where he realizes the world isn't exactly like he thought it was going to be. You're right. And it's you, you. You try and try, and you can put your finger in the dam and keep plugging those holes and shield them as much as you can and protect them. But it's it, the world's too big a place, yeah, and too nasty a place to. And then it becomes you run the risk of going the other way, like we saw in Dogtooth, where yeah, yeah, <laughs> where does it end? Well, well that's <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, Dogtooth. Yeah, I was just thinking about Dogtooth the other day. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, you know, my cousin just watched. I turned her on to something. She's really flipped her wig for. Um, like the Devils and Tenebrae and um, Dogtooth, I, I gave her like about twenty five films. I'm like, you got to watch these, and she's just going bananas for them. So <laughs> nice, yeah. But uh, no, you're right, man. You're absolutely right. Um, I like seeing the the immigrants in Japanese society. Like they talk about who they're going to source a hit out to, and they talk about triads. And I think the I think the Korean mafia is called the Japok. If I remember correctly, but they know we're going to get the Korean mob to do this. And just again, the business, they're outsourcing things. It, it, it shows so much in our society globally now. Um, everything really does seem more like a business transaction than anything. It's it's not, it just, you know what I mean? Everything's business. Yes. I don't know if that's me opening up my eyes to being um, older and, and, and more aware of the world around me, or if it's just partially the, the society we live in today. But. Yeah, everything really does come down to the dollars and cents. Um, I'll tell you, there's a few scenes in this 
or Takeda, who I should say in those sunglasses looks a bit like Takashi Miike with his shaved head. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a few scenes because for the most part, he's almost like they, they even call him, like they say, Confessions of a Dog, and that's, that's the title of the film, but he, he he's almost like a happy-go-lucky golden retriever type, and there's a few scenes, not very many, a few scenes where he bares his teeth, and he bring like he turns on the grade A intensity, intensity like Bobby De Niro. Like yeah. there's a couple of scenes where it's just zero to six. You're like, whoa. Yeah, there's a very De Niro esque scene uh, toward the end. Yes, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Very, very much Absolutely. so. That's great. It's a great, great. Uh, I mean, it's like it's one of those hypnotizing moments you get in cinema every now and then where you just can't turn away. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Definitely. Uh, just got two more notes. Um, I felt like they left the reporters out for too long in the film. Yeah, because once they come back, you're almost like, who's this character again? <laughs> well, it's that, and it's also you. They've been gone for an hour plus running time, and it's almost like I feel like they could have built into a crescendo with the end of the film, but instead, it's almost like it, it stops abruptly, and then it just kind of comes back in. It's, I don't think it was an afterthought, or it was a way to tie things up, but I do think it in a in a way it does kind of feel like that. Like I think the rhythm of the film would have been better served if if the reporter's pursuit of this story had have been more of a, a consistent line throughout the film instead of part one of the first third and the back third of the film right and the last one i have is as much as this is sort of a literal no frills you know solid film with a lot of flash to it there's a great fourth wall breaking confessional or monologue it's very theatrical and very reminiscent of like masamura or shunya ito or bonichi saito some of the more uh, visually dazzling directors we featured on the show um, with the, the, the lights go down and the spotlight comes on um, to Keita and, it, and it's you know really damning of the entire system top to bottom and and it's in, in a really showy but really fantastic moment uh, that kind of brings the title full circle so mm-hmm. yeah those are my notes I think also the term you know dog in the film it has a lot to do you know, this is a reach. royalty yeah that has a lot to do with that and also, there's a lot of scenes where, you know, Takata's eaten, but there's a lot of scenes over food. And it seems like people are always feeding each other and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, I mean, one of the best ways to get a dog loyal to you is, you know, dogs immediately pick up who feeds them, who takes care of them. Mm-hmm. And if you, uh, you know, if you feed your uh, underlings and you take care of your underlings, you're going to get loyalty pretty quick. There's also a scene where the captain calls uh, Takata, he, he, Takata is a... He's like, uh, I'm not worried about him. You know, he's a samurai. He's a, he's a yeah. yeah. He's got honor. You know, of course, the, you know that old adage comes into the whole the mix. So, yeah. Um, what you, one of the most interesting things about this film? This is one of those films. You know, it's one of those ones to sneak up on you. This film's you know five years old, and I'd never ever ever heard of it. Uh, I'm not really aware of any of Takahashi's other stuff either. But of course, you know now I am. But I wasn't mm-hmm. before. So now I'll be digging through the back catalog, so to speak. He hasn't made a film in three years, so I don't know if he's working on something now or what's up. But you know, hopefully, it didn't just completely ruin his career. This movie, I hope not, because he's definitely he's definitely uh, a, he's, yeah. he's a nice, refreshing voice. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like I said about Sagat, I mean, he's really great in the film. Uh, it was diff- it was a little difficult for me to figure out what was going on in the setup of the story. It it, it took a, it took a little while, but once once uh, once I grasped it, it all it all fell into place. But it. Just the way he tells the story and stuff, it took me a little while to get it going. I don't know if it's because of the the runtime or this film is very dialogue heavy. Yeah, it is, and it's very it's a very dense story. If you if you really, it's one of those films where, especially if you don't speak the language, if you turn away and you're not paying attention, I think you're gonna 
you know, you're going to regret that because you're going to have to rewind. <laughs> you're going to have to rewind the movie because uh, you're going to lose something. Because there's a lot of little moments interspersed in between all this, uh, these other moments. And if you turn away too long, I think, uh, you know, you can lose track of the story pretty quickly. I mean, the basic story is, is pretty basic, but there's a lot of stuff going on all over the place. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to say this. Uh, there's one scene where somebody's looking at a, a porn on a computer. Have you ever been to WaffleAngels.com, man? I don't know. I don't know what a Waffle Angel is exactly. If it's if it's of the blue shade, I don't know if I want to <laughs> yeah. venture there. I saw WaffleAngels.com. I hope that's not a website and everybody's going to it right now as I'm speaking. But <laughs> 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 oh, man. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, I think like the first 80 minutes, it can be a little little confusing as you really got to pay attention. I mean, you really got to stay on top of it. Um, it's easy for anybody, I think, in any position of power, you know, the old saying power into absolute power corrupts absolute or whatever, but mm-hmm. any position of power, it's easy to, um, to fall victim to it. I think that's a human trait. It's not, it's not so much a bad person trait. I mean, a lot of people, it's easy to judge, you know, but if certain things are thrown in your face, you know, you, you can say you wouldn't, you know, we can all say, you know, I wouldn't do that. Exactly. But it, it's very easy to from, from above or from outside. Yeah, from outside. But once you, if something really, really falls into your lap like that, you know, that's when your real character comes through. I mean, would you really fall victim to it or not? You don't know. Not until you're put in that position. So, and it's obvious him to get he's, he's a very good person. He's, you know, like I say, he loves his wife. Uh, he wanted to be a cop. That's, that was his dream. Uh, so, you know, everything's kind of, you know, working out for him. And then this, this thing kind of falls into his lap. And it's funny because there's that scene where you can tell the captain sees that. Like, he sees a guy that wants to overachieve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and just like... I he think, knows he's going to exploit, just much like the system, he's going to manipulate or exploit it for his own gain. Right. And just like, uh, you know, somebody's seeing a dog they like, because this goes back to the title, he knows he can train this person to be completely and totally loyal and everything. I mean, he just sees it. He sees it immediately, you know. So that's one of those things where, you know, it's just those little touches and stuff. Uh, let me let me say that there's a ton of money being passed around in envelopes in this film. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like every time I turn around, man, somebody had an envelope full of cash. It's true. <laughs> there's a ton of it being passed around. Uh, it's it's a crime movie, but I also say, you know, it's a heavy drama. I mean, this is a really in, like enticing story. It's not just, uh, you know, about the corruption and crime and cops and things like that. It's also about, you know, people and, uh, you know, how, you know, the weaknesses of human, uh, the human condition, you know, and things like that. And, and sometimes the strength of the human condition, the pride and the honor and things like that. So these are things that really spoke to me quite well, especially that last, I guess, the last 10, 15 minutes of the film. I mean, uh, you know, the, a lot of stuff is explained to you in, the, in those moments and, uh, and, and powerfully, to say that, to say the least. A little bit of me thinks the movie's just a little overlong, and I th- and I agree with you in, in some spots because the reporters come and go, and I mean literally come and go. I mean, Will, Will wasn't kidding when he says they're gone for, but it seems like they're gone for about an hour. Oh, for sure. And it, it's like you know, once they come back, it's like, oh yeah, there's this plot thread. I forgot about this thing. You know, now we're back into this. So it almost feels like you know, like a TV show. Like you know, like you, know, mm-hmm. you get this hour, and then you get this hour, and then you get this hour. Uh, you know, it's like over three weeks or whatever, but. Uh, I just feel like some of it, you know, there's a lot of big chunks of it that could have been, you know, cut out and stuff. Also, the uh, 
the leader of the the guy that runs that paper and like he's funny looking uh, guy man look like he had like long hair and stuff and just cracked me up fucking, right rocking the fucking bolo tie man <laughs> yeah. he's wearing the bolo tie yeah a little on the regular too it wasn't just in one scene it was like <laughs> five years later dude's still wearing the bolo tie <laughs> well, i mean if you rock the bolo tie typically like red brown you rock it forever that's right for life <laughs> that's right <laughs> um I mean, it just feels like there's a little bit of padding and stuff. I mean, the acting is really the key here, especially Shun Sagata. He really carries the movie and stuff. Everybody's good in the film. I don't think there's any real bad acting, except maybe for that drug withdrawal scene, which is just yep. b- bizarre. But uh, the film, you know, it's it's very it's a very dense film. I'm really glad that you know John mentioned it for us to cover because you know this is something. Honestly, I never I don't know when I would have heard of this. You know, it would have been something I would have stumbled upon accidentally at some point, I guess. Yeah, for sure, man. Because it's not the latest Sion Sono or Takeshi Miike film. It's it's a film that was hard to find distribution and is three hours plus long. And yeah, I don't think old. I don't think Ogino. I don't think he's like really popular in the circles right now. I mean, he ain't like uh, Sion Sono or somebody like that. You know, he's not like uh, you know. You hear that name and you think, oh yeah, I don't know. You know, check out his film, man, because he's he's a little wacky. You know, like a Miike or somebody like that. Takahashi. Yeah. This is the first thing I've ever seen by him and. Uh, you know, I'm gonna check out some other stuff, and hopefully he'll keep working and stuff. Mm-hmm. Looks like that film he did last, that film called Goth, looks pretty interesting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'll have to check it out. It does. Uh, but I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I mean, you've pretty much covered everything I was going to talk about. So, okay. Um, my make or break. I didn't mention it, but it's a scene when things have come full circle, and it's a scene with a young police officer when he sees him in his little like apartment. He sits down against the wall and he's eating. And he says to him, why did you become a police officer? And it's the back and forth between them. And we see the cycle starting over. And it's a really great scene when we see through, um, almost through Takeda looking, just a look and, and himself reflecting on where he's at in his life and how he was once this idealistic officer, mm-hmm. how he got to where he was. And it may seem like a, a, a scene that's cliche or stock, but it's handled perfectly by the two actors in the scene and uh, I think reminds us that Takeda wasn't this finger in all the pies scumbag <laughs> cop always he was a good man so which also really kind of bangs home the point of you know the system uh, you know and power corrupting absolutely as blue power corrupting absolutely versus it being a bunch of animal you know scumbags uh, here so uh, that's my make or break scene. MVT is is, uh, is Gen Takahashi's bravery to make this film. It's one of those films that, um, again, who knows who would have had the guts to stick with this film, make this film, because he could be blackballed from a lot of things, you know. But it's one of those things where it's a testament to his bravery to to make this film despite it marginalizing him or blackballing him uh, either creatively or professionally in, down the road because it felt like it had to be made and my score for the film was an 8 out of 10 uh, I think this is an excellent film it, it is very long but like you said it never feels uh, that length I mean does it, there are times where maybe a few minutes here or there could be cut out sure but it doesn't ever feel flabby to me so right right what was that score again say it again uh, 8 out of 10 oh okay nice um, okay, yeah, I'm going to make a break. I'm going to go with uh, the confessional scene because it's just such a powerhouse moment. Uh-huh. Um, not to get into too much detail, but yeah, I mean, it's basically... It is a great scene. <laughs> I mean, it's just really, really good, man. I mean, it just had me, like, you know, hypnotized. I was just like, wow. Yeah. 
Really, really good stuff. Uh, my MVT, I'm going to go with Sagata. Uh, just a great performance. I mean, he really carries this whole movie. Uh, it's just very, very impressive. I, I mean, I'm just, you know, he's definitely an actor that I'm going to keep an eye on going forward. I mean, he's done 94, he's got 94 credits. And, you know, I've seen him in stuff, but now he, you know, he's really at the forefront for me because this is really a great performance from him. A rather large man. I just can't believe how big he was. Um, my score is a little bit lower than yours, a 7.75. I think it's really good. I think it's, it's just a, some of the length, I think, is just a little too long. I think it's just, you know, some of the length is too long. You know, it's, hear, the, hear the words I'm saying here, man? This is crazy. <laughs> the is That's that? the perils of neither one of us having coffee. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you were self-editing because I was just like, <laughs> Yeah, it is too, the length is too long. But it is, it's, it's a little overlong in spots, I think. You know, I mean, I don't, I'm not talking about it being too long. Well, yeah, it is too long. I think it maybe could be like 25 minutes shorter and they could have got just as much done because I think there's some scenes where... It just feels like a lot of padding and stuff. But I do like all the scenes. I just feel like there's a lot of scenes, you know, involving, you know, food and, and you know, people eating. And it's like the dominance of eating, too. It's always like somebody above them is feeding them or something like that, you know. So I think there's a lot going on there. You know, maybe some dog-type psychology things type things going on there. But, yeah, no, it's, it's a really, really good film. Definitely worth owning. So I would definitely, if everybody wants to pick it up, head over to Diabolic DVD and grab this one. Because it's, it's an epic but it's a good epic. And it's limited to a thousand copies. Yes. A G note, if you will. <laughs> a Gino note. A Gino yeah. note. A Gene Takahashi note. All right. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll come back and talk about Chunking Express. So we'll be back right after this. Ahoy, mateys. This is KAB, Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here, beaming a signal across the sea. I'll be here playing music all through the witching hour. I'm still waiting to hear from that weatherman. But in the meantime, stay here with me. Be sure to visit our sponsor, Paracinema Magazine. They're the source for all your genre movie needs. Check them out online at paracinema.net. Tell them Stevie sent you. Keep me turned on for a while, and I'll do my best to do the same for you. The Smooth Sound. Fabulous. 'd the bat macumba there so <laughs> I, was af- I was afraid I was listening to it I was like wow watch it cut off again look like an yeah. asshole I haven't I've, n- I've never podcasted before a record scratch it's <laughs> <He was> like <laughs> <laughs> excuse me yeah all right uh, so our next film is Chung King Express I'm gonna let you synopsize and uh, we shall discuss. Wong Kar Wai's movie about two love-struck cops is filmed in impressionistic splashes of motion and color. Uh, and I think that that's fine. We don't need to get into too much more. That says it all. But yeah. two love-struck cops in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. 
All right. Uh, so, so for those who don't know, and we'll mention the last week and stuff, uh, Wong Kar Wai is shamefully one of those kind of directors who, for me, not in a bad way, shamefully, it's just one of those things where me and him just haven't had time to get to know each other. It just seems like every time I get a chance to watch one, I'm like, ah, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead and watch this first, and then I'll watch Wong Kar Wai. And uh, it's just you know we just we just haven't spent any time together. Well, things have changed. We've we've we spent a lot of time. We spent some time together this week and stuff. So this is the first time for me seeing Chung King, believe it or not. I got to say how excited I am to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I really am. And so you know it, it was interesting, you know. And of course we watched the uh, Criterion Blu-ray, which I have to ask you, you know, does does you know? I've only ever seen this on Blu-ray, so I, I can't compare it to a DVD release. So how did you, how did you think the Blu-ray looked? Um, I think it looked good, but because this film is, is overlit at times and blown out at times, and because the the uh, saturation that Doyle, the DOP, is mm-hmm. one of the best, one of my favorite DOPs, absolutely. Anyone who watched a lot of Hong Kong film and loves Wong Kar Wai, loves Christopher Doyle, um, it's a bit oversaturated, so it looks grainier than it is sometimes. Right, right. And that that's that's his style. So, does this film look like a like a, a deal breaker for blu-ray no but it, it is sharp and it does look good certainly uh it's as good as it's gonna look like i said i think that's just because of the the style of the saturation the grain that the doyle uses when he films his films that you know we want car wants them filmed right right so i like i said this is the first time for me seeing it so i have to get into a little bit you know I mean, the first of all, I mean, immediately it jumps out at me that, you know, Wong Kar Wai is obviously a stylist. I mean, he's obviously a guy who likes, you know, to use different styles and type things for telling his stories. So, right off the bat, you know, the you know the score, the music, and the way this kind of stutter, shuttered uh, shooting is going on. It's pretty amazing. It looks great. Uh, you get to Takashi Kaneshiro, who... <laughs> It's so weird. I was talking to Will about this. Like, you know, he, he looks so young. I mean, the guy's age come very well. Oh, and, for sure. And uh, but he looks so young in this. So young, as a matter of fact, it's, it's almost like they put makeup on his cheeks. It looks like he got rosy cheeks. He's so young. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And uh, he's you know he, he plays this cop. What was the number again? What was his number? He is two two three. I believe two two three. Yes, that's right. He is. And uh, you know he's he's a he's a love lorn cop. He he really wants to be in love. He really wants a relationship. And he keeps talking about this character named of May. And he's a very much a romantic, you know, because he, you know, he he'll go buy pineapple that's going to expire on May first, and so he's very, you know, in some ways, he's very super superstitious, and uh, he, he, you know, you really get in touch with this character and stuff, and of course, you know, during this process, you get uh, um, the Bridget Lynn, is it Bridget Lynn, is it Lynn or Lean? Mm-hmm. It's Lynn, I think. Bridget Lynn, yeah, yeah. She's, you know, she got her best Marilyn Monroe going on. She's walking around. She's wearing the trench coat like uh, Takata was in the <laughs> Confessions of a Dog. We well, two movies with trench coats this week. You know what she reminded me of? Um, this is actually one of the last films she did. It should be said. One of the legendary actresses of Hong Kong. Uh, you know, Bride with White Hair. She worked a lot with uh, Choi Hock, Peking Opera Blues. I mean, just a legendary actress. Um, she and I didn't realize this the first time I'd seen it because I wasn't aware of John Cassavetes then, but I was aware of it this time when I watched it. Uh, and that's Gloria. It really did her up like Gloria. If you look at the cover for the Cassavetes from Gloria, 
you'll see what I mean with the trench coat and the blonde hair and the sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Gina yeah. Rowland's character. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, when I was looking into the trivia to see if there's anything I didn't know about this film, not that I think I know everything because I certainly know everything about this film, but just some tidbits to share on the show, that was one of the things they mentioned. So I was kind of glad that that I was I was right about that. Did she just uh, retire? Is that all she did? Yeah, she retired. She married, I believe, a businessman or someone who worked behind the scenes. And, and I think after that, the last thing she did was... Um, one from one film at the same time with Wong Kar Wai, Ashes of Time, and then right. she did a few minor parts in a few films. Um, but other than that, she retired uh, for domesticity. Ah, okay. Yeah, you know, she might come back at some point. Sometimes Maybe, I get, yeah. sometimes I get the urge. I mean, she did ninety-one films, so it's she got her fill in, yeah, or ninety-one credits, I should say. It's not like she didn't, <laughs> not like she didn't work. I mean, she started working back in the early seventies, mm-hmm. so she's been working for quite some time. I didn't really realize she was that old. I mean, not old, but that age, I should say. Mm. Wow. Age, yeah, man. Age well. <clears throat> oh, definitely. Something in the water over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, you know, she's walking around. So, you know, you, you get this feeling that this, this film is going to be, as I, this is me, it's the first time watched, so I think you can understand where I'm coming from when I say this. I get the feeling that the film was going to be something else than what it turned out to be. Okay. Because the first... I guess twenty to thirty minutes is kind of Shiro and uh, and Bridget Lynn's kind of well. Really, it's more Takashi Kinoshiro's story, right? I mean, yep. he's basically narrating the thing and talking about you know this character of May and you know he's going to some of the same haunts. He's going to the the the, the fast food type uh, restaurant little thing there that you know we'll see later with uh, Tony Lung's uh, character, but which which is part of the title. Of the film, mm-hmm. uh, they, they combine two things. Chungking is a, a slummy area where a lot of Indian immigrants hung out, and then Express. I think was it. They call it Fast Express or Indian Express. Midnight Express is the name of the, the the takeout joint where these two police officers meet. Which is one of the only connective threads between the two stories is that they're kind of lovelorn police officers who eat at this fast food joint. Yes, they go there and you know they get their fish and chips. And every time they would order, you know, later on when uh, uh, Lung would order the. Uh fish and chips i always kept thinking man i really want some fish and chips right now yeah tell me about it I want some tartar sauce that's one of my favorite meals in the whole wide world is fish and chips man oh yeah yeah <laughs> i could eat it all day long that's and then feel like shit afterwards yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man I'm a little choked up there um but yeah i mean so the, what we got is we got two guys that are really they're hopeless romantics right mm-hmm. and uh you know this was refreshing for me because i'll be honest with you I kind of thought this film was something other than what it was. What did you think it was? Curious. I thought it was more, you know, Tarantino's a big fan of it. You know, his Rolling Thunder um, label kind of put it out in the States. They did, yeah. Uh, you know, kind of got it some notice and stuff. Uh, I thought it was more, you know, I thought I, I knew there was a female-male connection in the film, but I thought maybe it was more just a cops and robbers type thing with some, oh, like, like some, uh, like some uh, you know, some love, uh, you know, some... Uh, uh, Something like uh, like true romance, maybe maybe something sure. like two two people who are in love, but you know they're not the best people in the world actually in re- in reality. But you know the love kind of overshadows. You know you're rooting for these people even though they're terrible people. You know, so I thought right, it was right. like one of those kind of films, Bonnie you know? and Clyde type. Story. Yeah, 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 like oh. a Bonnie and Clyde type. Story. And, and of course, a lot of the stills I'd seen kind of screamed that at me. You know, you Bridget Lynn in a blonde wig. You know, you got you know people running around. You know, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. okay, this is one of those kind of stories. You know, so <laughs> and it's completely not. It's completely a a, a story about sentimentality and love yeah it's it's totally the opposite of what i thought so that was a really nice pleasant surprise now the the handheld camera work is uh it always lends itself to an immediacy immediacy that uh 
you know, some people know how to use it and some people don't. It's obvious he really does kind of know how to use it and stuff. I mean, there's scenes okay. where the running and stuff and, 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 uh, and, uh, I always think, man, when I see, where was this, where was the shot? Right in Hong Kong and, and in that district, uh, where, uh, <laughs> Chongqing, like around where, and I want to say to people before I forget, can you believe this film was sort of a, it was a throwaway creative outlet for Wong Kar Wai because he was doing Ashes of Time, his big epic wuxia period piece, um, with Leslie Chung and company at the same time and he just he was having problems with it so they shot this the film at the same time he shot it in 23 days and he shot it with on a very low budget and he would write the scenes that they were going to shoot the next day that morning yeah. so it was just kind of a, a one-off just just to kind of keep himself creatively involved in the process of making a film when he was having problems making ashes of time yeah. so, so, yeah, sometimes you know that's you know sometimes the best <coughs> stuff comes sometimes comes out of you know you having to do something. I know that uh, I've read that quite often with directors. Can't think of any situations off the top of my head, but I know I've read that before where people are having trouble getting one thing made and they'll make something else in the interim and that something else turns out to be something pretty amazing even though they were just doing it to keep busy. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting. I've never seen Ashes of Time, so I can't compare it to this. I, I think it's it's a sublime masterpiece. Um, I've, I've seen both cuts, the original and the, the redux that came out. At, I was blessed enough to see it. Uh, at the film festival a few years ago on the biggest screen maybe in Toronto or one of them. Actually, it was the moment we saw um, uh, it was in the same theater we saw uh, the Danish film um, uh, Deliver Us From Evil, but it was a big, the biggest screen in that theater. Oh, okay. And you know how big that theater was. Mm -hmm. Now, Vishnu would disagree with me. He fucking hates Ashes of Time, but <laughs> I think if you're a Wong Kar Wai fan, you will certainly dig uh, Ashes of Time because the aesthetic and a lot of it is, is similar. Well, that, that, that brings up an interesting point. Now, Wong Kar Wai is, is he's div divisive in some ways. He's an auteur. Yeah. He's, uh, some people love him. Obviously, mm -hmm. you do. I know you told yep. him he's, he's top 10 filmmaker for you. Oh, top 10, absolutely. top 15. Top, top 7 to 10. To me, top 5 to 10 for me. Yeah. And so, and then of course, you know, I meet some people who, you know, I think of the, uh, did you ever listen to the Chinstroker versus Punter episode where they did In the Mood for Love? Yes, I did. <laughs> Yes, and uh, you know you get a good sense of what those two guys are like right there yes, because you, do. <laughs> you get you know Mike who you know who loves what he loves and then you know Paul who <laughs> really you know hated the movie but that's okay I think you know you got to have filmmakers like that you got to have people who you know if filmmakers that are divisive is a good thing because it's still it's still just an art form you know if you, you either get in touch with now this film's pretty straightforward I don't see how anybody could hate this movie. I haven't seen the mood for. I've seen half of In the Mood for Love. I never went back to it, so I can tell you that I was a little bit like, eh, you know, I don't know if I'm getting into this. And I saw some of 2046, which I, uh, some of that I like too. But you got to see In the Mood for Love first because 2046 is like a quasi sequel. It's not imperative, but it will enrich your viewing because yeah. it's the same male character and, right. and a lot of the same stuff happening. But in both those situations, it wasn't like something I pursued. It was just on TV. It was on cable or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I'll just watch some of this and see what it's all about because I know Wong Kar Wai and all that. But I just never returned to him, so it's one of those things. But uh, yeah, so you know, you, you you can see that he's the, one of these type of filmmakers. You know, he's, he's uh, a lot of style, at least from what I know. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but but I've heard some people say there's not a lot of substance. Of course, there's one here. I think uh, the uh, what am I? Oh. I wrote a note here that's saying uh, Asian cinema is obviously more fascinated with fate, I think, than American cinema. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of faithful moments in this. Not faithful, but faithful. Uh, 
you know, I really like the kind of serendipity. Sense. Yeah, there's chance. There is fate, certainly, because I think we talk about love. You know, I, the thing about Wong Kar Wai is he is a, just a terribly romantic person, and 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 the sort of fatalistic nature sometimes of romance, and a lot of his characters are in his films. If you see Days of Being Wild, it's evident. If you see in Ashes of Time, if you see In the Mood for Love, I mean. Fallen Angels. I mean, you. you I think you watch almost any of his films uh, outside of what was that? I'm thinking the first one he did. I can't remember the first one he did. It was a gang, more of a gangster one. Uh, as tears go by, is that him? I can't remember now. But um, a lot of his films deal with that theme in, in some roundabout way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, I really like. It's it's hard to explain. He really. What I really like about him is he seems fascinated with characters. Um, and their emotions in the face. I mean, it, it, it's hard to explain what I'm trying to explain here, but yeah, it, is, it was as tears go by, by the way. Um, okay, good. I was right. Uh, I, I like how he shoots, you know, people kind of like an, at an off angle and stuff, but he's always kind of showing the reaction of another character while that character's talking to him and stuff. And I, and I like that. I like those moments because you're kind of like, you're watching. Because you know, you know, I mean, in this film, something's going on, especially in the second half. Uh, with the twenty one character and stuff, something's going on. You know, he knows, but he's acting like he doesn't know. You know, and blah blah blah. And there's some very, there's a very implausible game of hide and seek that's just you know ridiculous. But of course, once you realize he you know he knows, you know it's it's not like it's that implausible anymore, right? Because you know he knew anyway. It's people playing, yeah, playing. people playing these games, which that's people right. do when you know they're quote unquote courting or you know yeah. falling in love with each other. People play little games. I mean, that's just the way it is. Sometimes the games, depending on the person, can be ugly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes the games are, you know, very sweet, and you'll talk about them for the rest of your life if you end up with that person, you know, married to that person or with that person for the rest of your life. I mean, my grandfather always had great stories about how him and my grandmother met, you know, and, and you know, he would be or he would come around. He was always, he was trying to date her sister, and... uh he would always come over to their house and always dating his sister. And he said it was always this. My grandmother was very short. She was only like five foot tall. Oh, nice. And uh, he said he would always come around. There was always this pesky little girl running around <laughs> on the front porch getting on his nerves while he was trying to, you know, trying to, you know, make the moves on her sister and stuff. And But, you know, this pesky little girl ended up being, you know, his wife and, uh, you know, giving him three kids. So It's funny that that, that original uh Impression because it was the same thing. My my dad was working on my uncle's, my wife's, no, my mother's brother's car, mm-hmm. and my, my my mother gave him. She's like, "What are you doing under the, my my brother's car? Get out from there! Who the fuck are you, basically?" <laughs> you know, little things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like that, you know. And uh, you know, everybody has those stories, you know. So it, it's pretty great when you when you think about it. And that's that's where the fate piece comes in because you never really know. I mean, you never really. I mean, I, you know, if you if I'd asked you. Uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago, if you was going to marry who you were going to marry, you'd been like, if I, if I could have told you that, you'd been like, ah, no, I don't know about that. I mean, who, who knows, man? You know, but you never know. You never know. I, 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 t- I can tell you this. I met my wife and uh, it was a kind of a fluke thing. I met her and stuff and I didn't get along with her at all in the beginning. Uh, <laughs> I worked with her and I didn't get along with her at all. But she was, you know, I was like, whatever. But I uh, didn't really want to get to know her or anything, and then I ended up marrying her. So now I have a kid with her and everything else. So yeah, that's it. That's, that's, that's one of those things, goes. you know. That's the way it is. But uh, so this is, you know, the, I have to tell, uh, kind of share, kind of share. Although I have to go back to him for one second. I got to tell him that there's a difference between jogging and sprinting. <laughs> you know, he's always talking about jogging. I can tell him right now he's not jogging. 
No. <laughs> he's, he's sprinting, man. Jeez. Yeah. He's really giving it. He's really giving her, as I say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really like all the scenes with the restaurant and stuff. I, I, the Midnight Express, I really like all those scenes, uh, first of all, because I'm a foodie anyway, but second of all, because... Um, I, I, those moments are some of my favorite. You know, I like that he keeps coming back. You know, it's like Lung's character. He knows he knows what he's doing. Oh, for sure. You know, he knows what he's doing, and he's 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 got a you know he's got a woman, and he's and I don't I don't want to give away too much here. I don't want to give away too much story for those who haven't seen it. I know a lot of people have seen it because when I posted, it, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite films from the '90s and stuff like that." And but you know, he he, he kind of knows what he's doing in hindsight. I think when I watch the film, it's like you know he almost set it up in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you know. Gives her a key and everything. I mean, come on, man. Yeah. You know, I have to say they, they some of the scenes with, you know, Tony Long, I know him from a lot of stuff, okay? And I've seen a lot more of his recent stuff than his older stuff. Um, Because he's he's working a lot. Well, I don't know if he's working Who's a lot. Who's this, Tony Long? Yeah. He's starting- he, he, he sadly is, is a guy that doesn't work as much as I wish he did because in my eyes, for my money, and uh, I'm going to go on a limb. Oh, it's not even too much of a fucking limb. I don't know that there's a better actor in Asia, in my for my money, uh, than him. I think he is sublimely talented. I think he worked a lot in the beginning, and then he. I think he's, 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 he's up, yeah. He's, he's very making, se- he's very selective now. It seems. Yeah, man, and he commands big money, man. Like I think him and him and uh, Chai and Fat ask for the most money and out of Hong Kong, uh, out of Hong Kong, and I think he's. I'm not in front of his, his IMDb right now. I can take a look. But I think he's only done a handful of films in the past five or six years. Whereas most great Hong Kong actors, i.e. Anthony Wong, etc., are still making two, three, four, five films a year. Mm-hmm. So he really goes against the grain. It's almost like he works in the Hollywood mold of a film every year or two. Yeah, in the uh, last, uh, let's see, from 2004. Until, Seven years. And Yeah, until till, till now, he's only Three or four made, films? One, no, he's made... Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight films. Now, okay. two or two of those are you know one of them's in post production, one of them's filming. That's the other one with uh, um, uh, Wong Kar Wai where he plays uh, Yip Man again. Yeah, which I'm Yip hoping is a tiff man. Ooh. <laughs> uh, but then of course you know he was in the Red Cliff films. Yeah, and that's where I saw him recently and loved him. And he was in Less Caution, which I never got around to. I don't think you did either. No, I still have it. I got it. I, I bought it. I snapped it up right away. It, it's pretty spicy film it's uh Zhang, is it Zhang Yimou or is it um it's Ang no, Lee it? it's Ang Lee that's right yeah. um so I'm pretty excited to see it I heard a bit of mixed things but I really like Ang Lee and of course uh, uh Lung Chu Wai is, is you know I have a man crush on so and he did a film called Soul Raiders which is awful it's a it's a Chinese New Year film it's a, a sequel to Tokyo Raiders no oh, okay oh it's it's just it's it's basically like the Chinese New Year they put out like pretty lame like rom-coms and and sort of Hollywood fluff type films, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what it is. They're not very good. So he doesn't, you know, work as often as probably. Yeah, you're right. Probably he should. But every time he does pop up, though, you know, he's he's got this kind of he's he's got a natural charisma on screen. So. Oh, just effortless. Yeah, and he's really good. He's really good in this film. It should be said. I mean, he's really just. I really like him a lot in this film. And but there's some scenes in him <laughs> that, out of context, if somebody was to walk into a room with him sitting there, like one scene where he looks like he's fucking a Garfield doll. Oh, you know what I said about the Garfield doll? That's awesome, yeah, because uh, I, I, I got so many notes on this. Um, this, you know, Lung Chu Wai and Amon Kawai knew us before we knew us. They have a, a gigantic stuffed Garfield wearing a half shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's amazing. 
<laughs> and he's talking to these. Yeah, he talks to everything. I really like the scenes with him talking to inanimate objects because he, yeah, he, he's a lot a, of the characters too. Yeah, he's a lonely. He's a lonely person, and uh, you know, he talks to these things, and it cracks me up. Like the soap is very funny, where he's talking about the soap and about you know how skinny it is and how bad he looks, and then the next time he, and when he gets a new bar of soap, he's telling him that he's really let himself go. Yeah, well, you know what's I think interesting about that? I think that says a few things. I think it talks about the isolation of people um, in what is otherwise known as a very busy, densely populated city. Mm-hmm. And I think also I love how we get these glimpses of people when they're at their most kind of emotionally vulnerable or childlike, whether it's um, Takeshi Kinoshiro talking to fruit or uh, Tony Lung combing stuffed animals or Fei Wong playing with toy airplanes um, they all have their version of the Fair and Young song, Hello Walls, where they're, they're what's the word? Um, anthropomorphic, I don't know, I always fuck that word up, man. Anthropomorphic? Anthropomorphic or anthro-whatevering. Um, <laughs> Is it anthropomorphic or anthropomorphic? Anthro, 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 fuck. I think it's anthropomorphic. Morphic. We, we need, who fucking knows? We need to stop before we really get ourselves in a hole. <laughs> this is getting embarrassing. But when they humanize uh, inanimate objects, whether it's you know it's raining outside, like in the song uh, "Hello Walls," when he goes, "Is that a tear in the corner of your pain, or is it just rain?" Um, it's a, sort of the same thing when he talks about like the dish rag and it's crying, and and we get all that stuff. It's when people are vulnerable and, and alone, and it's about isolation and love, and and the yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of great scenes with that, but out of context, they'd be pretty funny and stuff, you know? <laughs> they would. They totally would. <laughs> but like I say, you know, there's a lot of these hide-and-seek moments and stuff, and, and I, I think, my, you know, the film to me is almost, and this might sound crazy to you, but let's see what you think, of because this is my impression of it. It's almost, in a lot of ways, it's it's almost, uh, it's a very stylish, uh, well, except for the first half, the first, well, not the first half, but the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so. Well, maybe the first half, I don't know. Um, I didn't really check the time. I didn't really. I never checked the time on this film, so I don't know when, how long the kind of Cheryl story lasted. Forty minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. So it's like maybe it's an hour and forty minutes long. Hour forty two minutes long. So. So anyway, the uh, it, the the back feels like a. It almost feels like like a really sweet, in a lot of ways, romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, not not like uh, like you know somebody falls down into a pile of poop and we all laugh kind of comedy. Right, but you know, like a Kevin James comedy or something like that. But uh, like a, <laughs> but like a, you know, just like a really sweet, like old school comedy, like you know, where people are, you know, falling. I mean, let me put it this way: this movie, it put a smile on my face, and that's nice. That's always really nice, you know, because I watch a lot of movies. Let's be honest, I watch a lot of movies that deal with fucking filth. And scumbags, you know. And so when I'm laughing or smiling, I'm smiling because it's just so fucking rude, you know. <laughs> you know. Like when I, you know, I'm watching when I watched Martyrs, you know, I was like, you know, shocked, but I was also kind of smiling because I was like, oh my god, I can't believe they're going this far, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of smiling to myself in my little sick, twisted way, but this film made me smile in a, in a different way. I was just looking through the uh, credits of a film, uh, Lung Dig, called Day High Tit. What's the American, the English title? Do you know? I don't know, but I like the Day High Tit. Uh, let me look and see here. What year was it? Uh, 2003. I've probably seen it. I was looking uh, through the character names, and I like that the, the some of the characters. <laughs> it's like Ming, Hoi Yuk, uh, G, and then there's like Fat Dong. And I'm like, yeah, okay, a Fat Dong. That's oh, nice. <laughs> Color of Sound. I think that's the the sequel to Color of Truth. Yeah. Um, it's a oh, romance. No, it's, no, is it? It's a romance. 
this, this, but they're saying that uh, this film's very much a you know it's very much a romance. So when you told when you told me this is one of your favorite films, I was like, okay, well, I think I know what I'm in for. Then I'm in for you know because you know the first half you got you got guns, you got broads and and uh, and wigs, you got uh, cops chasing drug them smuggling. around. Yeah, you got drug smuggling. I'm like, okay, this is this is right up Will's alley. You know, Will, Will's mm-hmm. a big drug smuggler. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> he's big on you know using Indian gas for mules. Absolutely, <laughs> so he does it in his free time. <laughs> Why do you think I live in Toronto, brother? <laughs> there you go. But uh, no, I, I was like, okay, so I can see what you know Will's going with, and of course, I know what your taste is as far as you know uh, style and, and colors and things like that, because I know some of your other you know favorite filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I thought I knew what I was in for. But then again, like I say, the backstory with uh, Lung and uh, Fei Wong, I guess uh, it. Man, I, I didn't expect that. So I was like, "Well, you know, Will, man, he's a pretty sweet guy, man." I am, despite my gruff, brute uh, Fabergé, five o'clock shadowed <laughs> exterior. Yeah, yeah, because I was terribly like, romantic. I was like, "Yeah, it's like this is this is a you know a very 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 sweeping romantic." And I got all caught up in it, man. I mean, I really got caught up in it. So much caught up in it that I was, I was like pissed off on the back end for you know I'm not gonna give anything away from the story, but I was like irritated. Yeah, <laughs> you know, where are you going? And it's emotionally irritated and stuff, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it just really made me just you know just perk up and smile, man. I was so happy. I'm so glad I watched it finally. It's one of those things where you know, I think all of us as film lovers know what it's like to no matter how much you see and how much you pursue, there's always something that seems that escapes you. Mm, oh, totally, man. And uh, Wong Kar Wai has been one of those guys for me. You know, I mean, I I got a friend of mine, man. He's never even seen a John Woo movie. It's crazy. Not even an American John Woo movie. He's never even seen Face Off or Broken Arrow or anything. Hard Target. Yeah, Hard oh, Target. Hard Target him yeah. or Lamb? I can't remember now. Yeah, it's Hard Target's him. Okay. He's never seen any of those, and I'm always like, dude, you got to check out the Woo. You know? Yeah. And But, you know, he's seen everybody that's inspired by Woo. But yeah. He's never exactly. seen that. But that's the way it is. I mean, sometimes you can you can just go around stuff. You don't, you know, you don't mean to. That's it's just the way life things. goes. Man. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it just kind of goes around you. But... Oh, yeah, a little text message in the morning. Here we go. Oh, what do we got here? <laughs> but it's really, it really was very pleasant, uh, a very pleasant viewing experience, and uh, one I'm so happy I finally got to. I really don't have a whole lot more notes, man, because I guess you consider this kind of an almost neo-noir in a way. Some- you could in a well, in a way, I think you could with some of the stuff that's happening. Um, it's, I think it, 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 you know, for me, I don't want car has always been very guarded and close to the vest with some of his influences or favorite films, although I think they're evident. And that's French film, the French New Wave and a lot of Italian films. Uh, right, right. Certainly. So. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of French New Wave here. Oh, yeah. Which is ironic, because a lot of the New Wave stuff I don't really dig on. I mean, I do dig on, I like Truffaut a lot, but Godard and, and whatnot. Well, I think that's the case with a lot of things. I think a lot of times you'll like a filmmaker who's inspired by stuff, and you'll go back and look at it, and, you'll, and that's just because, you know, your tastes are actually different in some ways. You... You'll find that uh, you know some of that stuff isn't really. I'm not a real big French New Wave guy. I mean, I like a lot of filmmakers who are inspired by that, but I mean, all the filmmakers we grew up with, the uh, Coppolas and all those guys. They, a lot of those guys are heavily influenced by French New Wave. But <laughs> you know, I'll, t- I'll take them over French New Wave. I know that's blasphemy in some people's eyes, but you know, some of the French New Wave. Well, stuff I, I, just no, I agree with it. you, man. It's important. I, I respect its place, but I, there's for the films that came after it, I I prefer as well. Well, Truffaut is actually, you know, you always mention that Truffaut. Is, he, he's actually he's probably the most accessible of the French New Wave directors too. So it's yeah, he is. It, that makes it a lot easier to get into his films because you know he's he's inspired by like Hitchcock and and filmmakers like that stuff. I don't know if you ever did you ever see his film The Bride War Black? Oh, I, I own it. I fucking adore it. Yeah, okay. that, that's I I absolutely love the Bride War Black. Yeah, so I mean he. 
you, you get these, you know, these guys are inspired by something else. So, you know, yeah. I think when you, you know, like Scorsese, he was inspired by, what was he? Uh, he liked the French New Wave but and Kurosawa and stuff, but he, there's somebody else he's very inspired by that I went back and checked out and I was not a fan of, and I can't remember who it was, but. Uh. You know, speaking of The Bride War Black, the ending of Tony Arzento, to me, the way it was shot really far away, like if, it reminded me a lot of, of the opening scene of The Bride War Black. Indeed, there was a uh, note in the uh, long uh, in Sammy's long lost notes so that he could he couldn't make that show that it mentioned that very thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that's all my notes on uh, Chunk. I, I I could talk about this all. The, I don't want to give away too much of the story because there might be somebody else that would. But I could talk about this a lot more. But I mean, really, the basically thing for me it was I was so pleasantly surprised by the fact that this was such a hopelessly romantic movie, uh, which is something we don't normally do on this show. No, nope. and uh, it was really nice. I mean, it wasn't like the you know, the type of romance we're typically going to end up doing is going to be like, you know, the hitman who has a wife, you know, and, you know, he, he's got to do one last job. I mean, that's that's the kind of romance we typically run into. We don't run into people falling in love so often on this show. Yeah. So, and, and you know, when you're falling in love, there's those magic moments because no, you're, you're, I don't care how long you've been in a relationship or how much you love your wife, your girlfriend, your dog, whatever, that nothing's you're- like those first moments. Nothing nothing will ever be as powerful sometimes as those first moments. I mean, yeah, there'll be great moments down the line. There'll be great, powerful moments down the line. But a lot of us always look back on those beginnings very nostalgically. Even me. I mean, I'm not a big fan of nostalgia, but I can still remember, you know, flirting with my wife and things like that. And we laugh about it. We still talk about it to this day. Well, it's one of those things you get a, a gl- I remember the glimmer in my wife's eye. Mm-hmm. It just, it, little things, yeah. It's, it's a different thing. Your relationship transitions and... um you know, it becomes something that evolves. But yeah, that early stuff has a magic to it, which I think um, Wong Kar Wai and then by an extension his characters are are always chasing that unicorn of the magic and the elusiveness of, of early love. Right, right. They love being in love or the thought of being in love. Exactly. So, there you have it. Um, okay, so yeah, I said this is a top ten. Wong Kar Wai, I love the cast. I love... Um, Criterion put it out on blue. It, it was interesting to see the role, because I remember, yeah, Rolling Thunder when then Tarantino stuff was on VHS. You know what was weird for me, which was a downer, was that Chung King was the only film, I think, when he had Rolling Thunder that didn't make, Rolling Thunder, wow. <laughs> Rolling Thunder that didn't make the jump from Rolling Thunder on VHS to Rolling Thunder on DVD for some inexplicable reason. Yeah, no, I know. I don't know if it was something else or just you know criterion grabbing it up i just don't know what it was but yeah it's too bad man you know what was interesting to see that i haven't seen in front of a film in, in many a moon is the miramax logo oh yes that was nice it was a nice uh little moment of the past <laughs> yeah it certainly was especially from you know the 90s are you know and actually probably almost exclusively from the 90s and late 80s but uh hadn't seen that in, in a long time so. yeah what he's talking about and for those of you who don't know i'm sure most of you do is the uh sweeping up to the uh, city vista with the uh, Miramax coming into the city lights. Yeah, that 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 was logo was on a lot of movies I was watching because they were putting out a lot of stuff I was interested in in the nineties. Oh yeah, and um, it was to see that skyline in HD too. <laughs> it was a bit of a trip, man. But uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, the film is very nineties, and and I don't mean that necessarily as a critique. Because when you get a filmmaker as as skilled as as Wong Kar Wai, it's not a bad thing, and we kind of touched on that. Um, and yeah, that that style that Doyle uses, uh, the DOP, um, which is kind of it, it bending and it's it's almost dreamlike or hallucinatory, and it's slow motion and blurred, and 
and it's uh, it's just really distinct and really fantastic. Um, it very much whenever I see anything comparable, so that it's always the first thing I think of is is Doyle and Wong Kar Wai's work together. Um, you know, it has to be said, I don't think I've ever seen Wong Kar Wai's as. He's Ga- always wearing sunglasses, man. Yeah, guys, guys like Nicholson, man. He never, he's never not wearing shades. He, I almost wondered to a degree if the if the um, Bridget Lynn character is like uh, him. I, I've often wondered that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, just because she she doesn't take her shades off even when she's sleeping. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I don't think you ever see her eyes in this film at all, do you? Nope. No. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through a bunch of pictures of one girl right now, and all I see is shades. There's a great. Um, a great interview he did. Fuck, what was that podcast? Someone turned me on to it. It was from New York City where they'd have like like a meeting where they would bring in a director and they'd talk about films. Was it called Talking with the Directors or Watching the Directors? or I can't remember the name of it, but they've talked to everyone from Jim Jarmish to Wong Kar Wai. And there's about an hour-long interview with Wong Kar Wai. It was, I think, right after My, my Blueberry Nights came out and he was here promoting it. And it's a really good listen if you want because he doesn't do a lot of stuff. Even on the disc, this is a commentary track, which I sadly didn't get to listen to, that's done by uh, an Asian film, a highly respected Asian film uh, critic. So, Right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many sort of out of context, they seem silly, but hopelessly romantic thoughts in the in his film. Like when Takeshi Kaneshiro thinks back over um, uh, his first encounter with Bridget Lin, he was running one way to catch a man who had a paper bag on his head, oddly enough. And Bridget Lynn was running the other way, chasing someone, and, and it, it becomes a freeze frame, and it says, that was the closest we ever got, 0.01 centimeters apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 57 minutes, or what is it, 57 57 minutes. hours. I 57 think. hours later, um, I would be falling in love with this woman. Yes. So, it, it, out of context, maybe it sounds a bit whatever, but it, it, even when you see the film, you can't get, help, get caught up in that. No, it's just it's those moments of fate. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, the, the, I love those little bits because, I mean, that's literally how fickle life is. I mean, we, we'd all like to believe we're in control of our lives. That's what that's the, the great lie humanity tells itself. Yeah. You know, we, we, we believe, you know, we're top of the food chain. We got control over everything we do, blah, blah, blah. But. I got hard and hard and cold news for you. You really and ultimately, you really don't have total control over your life because fate. Sometimes, you know, whether you believe in it or not, some people don't believe in fate. And I totally understand that. But you, I don't see how you couldn't. This isn't about religion or anything else. Yeah. Um, this the timing of things. If I left my house, for example, one or two minutes later because I had to take a shit, there could have been an accident or a pileup that killed me. Like that's that. This just the threads of, of the ripple effect and dominoes of of events. That we're surrounded by, you can't help but I think right. look at that's fate. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is fate, and you know, I mean, that's what we call it, but that's what it is. I mean, life is is timing. Everything in life is timing. So, absolutely, man. Absolutely, everything is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, another thing, I, I, I could listen to it on an endless loop. Um, and I think Hong Kong filmmakers do it maybe better than anyone. And I, I won't be able to verbalize this, and I may have touched on this before, but I love how not only does is Wong Kar Wai capture the sort of the elusive magic of love, but the elusive magic of nighttime. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's that very synthy piece of music that plays at the opening of the film, yeah, and it plays a few times throughout the, the Takeshi Kaneshiro. That boom, 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 yeah. boom, <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. that man. I absolutely love, love, love that piece of music. I, people like Johnny Toe. And people like Wong Kar I think ultimately you get it with a lot of directors who have resided in a large city. Like I said, I find that the Hong Kong directors do it best, and that's 
capturing this this almost un or indescribable magic um, and electricity that comes from nighttime and 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 being out at three in the morning and I don't know I can't really put it into words but it's something I've always felt as a person if I'm driving or I'm somewhere and these streets are quiet yeah and it's three in the morning and there's just something magical but elusive I can't really even put it into words but they I find that Hong Kong directors tend to capture that quite well um, there's, there's just something magical about that I mean I before I got married, uh, I was very much a night person. I still am a night person, ultimately, mm-hmm. in my heart. I mean, I'd rather, I'll be honest with you right now, I mean, I'd rather stay up till, I'd rather my life be staying up till 5 in the morning and then sleep until like noon or 1 o'clock than I would be the life I do have, which is, you know, getting up at 6 a.m. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a morning kind of guy. I don't like the early morning hours. Some people love that shit. Some people love that, you know, sunrise and early part of the day and stuff. And you get used to it, don't get me wrong. but You do. I miss, uh, you know, sort of my, when I had less responsibility, I miss my, you know, sleep until four in the afternoon, staying up all night, you know, being outside, smoking cigarettes in the middle of the night in the summer. That Those are just, yep. those are just like, it's like a beautiful time in my life, you know, that, that lack of, you know, being, being awake when the rest of the world's asleep is a magic time. It is a magic time. And almost like when you would sit outside and everything's quiet. Yeah. And all you, you almost you, you the other thing you hear is you're you're you inhaling or exhaling your cigarette and when there's a breeze hearing those leaves rustling in the breeze. Yeah, and there's a protection in the dark too. It's like, you know, you're not yeah. seen as well either. I mean you can kinda I've always had this theory that people who like to hang out late at night and stuff, they they, they, they might go to places where they can be seen a lot, obviously, but I think that, you know, like I used to sit around on like some people's back porches or something and just smoke cigarettes and listen to music and stuff, but there's some a protection in that darkness of, uh, you know, not being seen by everybody, doing, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of an insular kind of a existence. Yeah, oh no, I totally agree, man. Totally agree. Um, outside of even that piece of music, that synthy piece of music, um, there's, this is an eclectic soundtrack, and I think you know Wonka is a, gay, a guy who again who has a lot of Western influences. But there's like some dub in it, like there's that one piece of music that like a reggae kind of dub piece of music that's always played on the jukebox. Um, oh, there's yeah. of course California Dreamin', um, like Cranberries. You're saying, Cal- you're saying uh, California Dreamin's in this? I don't remember it at all. It would have been easy to to overlook, <laughs> yes, certainly. <it> would have. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Fei Wong, a cranberries by way of Fei Wong. Yes, which you heard in the opening there. Which I, I you know, it's funny because that's a song that was overdone, man, overdone, overdone, overdone. When I heard it last night, and then I heard it on the show today, it it still felt fresh to me. Well, I chose to use the Fei Wong version because I, I really don't really care for the cranberry version. Nor do I. And the Fei Wong version, for some reason, to me. It feels a little bit more emotional. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's the. I don't chant. know if it's a connection we're making with knowing that it's Fei Wong who sings it, and then has this this situation with uh, Tony Lung Chui or, or what it is. I guess it has to be that because it just feels more emotional to me that version because I was listening to it and I was like, oh crap! But you know, that's just one of those tired '90s songs. I mean, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm just not a big fan of it. And 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 then I heard it and I was like, wait a minute, that's not you know, that's not uh, the Cranberries actually singing that. That's somebody else. So I started doing some research and looking into it and stuff. And I was like, oh, so I listened to that version and I bought that version, listened to it, and I was like, oh, this, you know, this is this feels a lot more fresh. It just feels better. So it's one of the songs yeah. where it's weird. It's probably written in English, but it feels better in this language Cantonese, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely man um i'll tell you what probably doesn't feel better is eating 30 cans of near expired pineapple no man that can't be good can't be good you know what's interesting that i don't think it's captured too many times in the film that takeshi kanashiro's character laments 
and I think it's something we're all guilty of. I know I've been there. In the throes of heartbreak, we find ways to connect everything around us back to the person that just broke our heart. Oh, yeah. Like for him, it becomes this pineapple. It expires May 1st. Her name was May, and I'm going to give her 30 days mm-hmm. basically before I know our love is dead. And and it becomes one of those things. I remember it being such a sad sack that I, you know, be girl broke up with me, and I would hear a song on the radio. It couldn't have even been a love song, but it says a word like, you know, it could have been fucking Christopher Cross sailing, nice. takes me away. And I'll think of the time when we were at the beach and there was that sailboat and we made a joke about the sailboat. Or oh, yeah. then I'll pass a sign for hot dogs on sale. It's like, oh, I remember when we went to Coney Island. And you find a way to connect everything back to that heartbreak. Yes, you always do. That, that's, that's a, again, a part of the human condition. That only, not only does it go to heartbreak, but it also goes to loss. Like, you know, I can still look at my house there. We lost one of our Labradors, uh, you know, four or five years ago. And I still look at this house, and and uh, I still can remember spots he he laid in, you know. Just and he's a he's a dog, you know. I mean, but you still remember those things, yeah, you know. And I have moments where you know me and my dad weren't really tight, but I have moments where something will hit me, and it's like oh, I remember my dad really like that, or like a movie, or like a you know, something like that, you know. And it, it's it's that way, you know. You, it's, I think it's you know that's sometimes the healthy and the unhealthy part of nostalgia. Sometimes it can you can get swept up in that, and of course you know you get. Kind of, you know, it can become detrimental. Of course, the key is is not to get swept up in it and and keep moving along. But I'm just like you, man. I mean, there's still things I I own. I have a keychain on my on my keys mm-hmm. uh, that a girlfriend gave me that I was desperately in love with in high school, and I still oh, yeah. ha- I still have that keychain. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy how that works sometimes, man. And I, you know, I I don't know I don't know why I still have it. I mean, I don't I really don't I can't explain it to you. Yeah, that's that's a very human thing, and like I said, it's something that Juan Carvajal captures a lot. It comes back to romanticism about about whether it's about life or specifically romance itself. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, pining for he he he. I think he loves the the notion of pining for something, longing for something. Right. Um, but to get back to the whole glory, the Bridget Linus Gloria, uh, Gina Rollins thing, even to the point where it's it's sort of the reverse, where instead of a child falling into her lap, she kidnaps a girl at one point. Yeah. I didn't expect that. I was like, whoa. No, no. And that's, one thing that, I, that's another one of those moments, man, where as a parent now, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I can't imagine that happening. Oh, no, definitely not. Um, there's a great moment when Takeshi Kinoshiro is at the bar and Bridget Lynn's in there. And when he gets this smile that unfolds on his face, and you can tell it's it's that thing of a man seeing a woman and he's thinking about the possibilities that are always there at night with a new love because I think we were just talking about but you can see that smile unfold as, he's, as the wheels are turning in his head that the possibilities around this is a new love anything can happen it's exciting right right so I really like that and um, there's a line when again I think this certainly you know spoke to me to a degree too is is when Bridget Lynn rebuts one of the things he says and because and, he says I really want to get to know you and, and she says well, really knowing someone doesn't mean anything people change and I, I think a lot of the lines in this film could potentially be writing from a personal space. Yeah, it feels so, like a very it feels like a very personal film. Yeah, whether it was or not, or it was just a creative outlet or not, so be it. But I do think that it, it's sometimes you get that sense, much like when um, in Irreversible or some of No Way's films, he's you feel like it's him speaking to you uh, about some things he feels. <clears throat> oh, yeah, um, I totally get that from uh, No Way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jukeboxes, man, are they still around? Uh, well, I, I still see them occasionally, but they're not, you know, not as popular as they used to be, I would say. You still see them every now and then. They, they got them up there? 
Yeah, they do a little bit, a little bit, not as much as they used to. And it's sad, man, because I used to love going and playing the music I wanted to hear at a club, at a, like a bar or somewhere. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's getting back to the whole nighttime thing, but this is more the break of dawn when <clears throat> we see Takeshi Kinoshiro leaving the hotel. And it's really strange for me to see empty streets in Hong Kong at any time of day. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a claustrophobic city. To oh, me, yeah. you know, it, it 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 looks so good on camera. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I've never visited the place, but I don't know if I'd really like that feeling because it just feels so claustrophobic. Yeah, no, it, it's totally true. Um, even the thing to get back to the voice of Long Carwai talking about how he took off Bridget Lynn's shoes as she slept, and and he cleans her shoes, and it's a very sweet thing, and it's also something that you could almost see like this is like a, a personal mantra of his, like you know, such a pretty woman should have clean shoes. Right. You know, and you get kind of get that vibe again because it's almost too specific a detail that either you know the writing between him and his collaborators was so spot on, or it had to come from a personal place with someone. Something that. And I'm thinking she's a hell of a woman because she's been walking around all night in those uh, you know slightly high heels. It's a hell of a woman that can walk around in those kind of shoes for so long. Oh, is, is it ever? <laughs> uh, you know, another line I like is when it gets to Tony Lung's uh, story, and. He's ordering a chef salad, and the guy that runs the Midnight Express says, Chef salad again? <laughs> and uh, Tony Lung says, Well, it's her favorite. And uh, he says, Are you sure? And he goes, Well, she never said it wasn't. And I, just, I, I, just, I like that line. <laughs> I don't know. It's really good. Um, and yeah, we kind of talked on this, but yeah, Lung just exudes just effortless, effortless charisma and confidence without it being overbearing or arrogant. Yeah, he never feels like. Uh you know, he never, he's a big star, but he never really feels like, I don't know, there's some kind of modesty in him that, that I really like. Some kind of, kind of subtle way of doing things that he does. Quiet and, confidence, though. Yeah. He just, it's just so, he, uh, he, on camera, he's just so subtle and, and, and yet, you know, he, he works so well. And, you know, it's, it's come, it's almost like the opposite of what you'd want to do as an actor. It seems like you'd want to draw attention to yourself, but he draws attention to himself by just being there, which is something magical that only certain actors have. Yeah, oh, definitely. There's some really fantastic POV stuff. It starts out as POV, and then it subtly shifts. But it's when he's with his uh, lover, the stewardess, and it starts off, and you can see his hand. He's got this toy plane, and and it's it's slightly slow motion, and and um, um, it's almost like this Etta James or Billy Holiday type uh, singer singing. And it's him just with this toy plane again. It's people that they're vulnerable, this vulnerable state, and uh, I, I really like that moment. It's it's kind of a moment between them, and it, cinematically it looked fantastic. It just it worked perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God when I hear California Dreaming now, I think of this movie and not some shitty infomercial featuring the Time Life's Best of the '60s collection. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a seminal song, right? So you know, yeah. but that, that that is true. I'll think of this movie more often. Uh, it's it's in a lot of movies, but uh, yeah, this one they, you know, Faye Wong's character really loves that song to say the least, so and uh, <laughs> so I'll think of this film almost every time I hear it from now on. Yeah, it's great that it does that and shifts away from some, you know, some guy who's in his sixties wearing a Mandarin collar shirt uh, who was on a TV show back in the day pitching uh, music with Suzanne Somers or someone. Um, you know, they, again, I think Walker captures a lot of moments. Uh, when it, it almost seems as if the actors or the people are unaware, it's almost like you catch people in real life in the middle of a moment. Uh, like the scene when uh, Tony Lung is at the the counter at the Midnight Express, and Fei Wong's got her hands on her chin, 
looking at him adoringly, and he's somewhat un- he's somewhat oblivious at this point, and that's in slow motion. But in the foreground, the world's whizzing by. Mm-hmm. That's like mm-hmm. everything stops. Yeah. And just you know, she gets that's 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 that sweet look. Uh, speaking of great smokers, Tony Long is a great smoker. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He has to go into the pantheon, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, now you know you talked about the hide and seek thing, and it's one of those things where I have to think that as great a filmmaker as Kim Ki Duck is, he totally lifted the the kind of almost seemingly inadvertent hide and seek cat and mouse from this to use in Three Iron. Yeah, it, it reminded me of Three Iron in spots. Um, you know, it had some of the same feel of that. Although, mm-hmm. like I say, in this film, I feel like uh, Lung's character knows. Yeah, well, certainly. But but then there was always the question of at what point did the female character know in Three Iron? Right, right, right. That's so, true. yeah. But just even if it's it's slightly rejigged, I think the, 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 the cinematic aspect of it or to employ a scene like that. Uh, and I, I obviously I love his color palette: pastel greens, warm yellows, reds. I mean, he really turns it up when <clears throat> in, in Ashes of Time and in the mood for love and stuff. But you know what I really like is that one moment where you know, he would talk about how his uh, ex girlfriend would hide in the closet to scare him. Oh yeah. And then he has that moment where you know he sees this girl, and then he sees her jump out of that closet and then he goes to the closet instead of going after the girl he looks at the closet longingly so he has that moment you're talking about the the new and the old kind of crossing mm-hmm. and it's really yeah. a great moment for Lung's character <clears throat> oh it, it absolutely is um, he doesn't say a word it's all in his face yeah yeah it just unfolds there it's fantastic uh, miss my last note I hate to go on on such a actually no two more notes uh, God bless Fei Wong but man, she's got some fucking pasty ass legs. <laughs> Holy uh, cow! They haven't seen sunlight in, in she's, many a moon. You know, she's a certain kind of girl. I think some. You know, she's got this kind of uh, pixie. Yeah, the pixie kind of look here going. Now, some guys are really into that. I'm not, but me neither. You know, I can understand people that are. Yeah, hey, uh, for sure. I know uh, Blake said he really. Yeah. He said I, I fell deeply in love when. Uh, when watching Fei Wong in the film, and I said yes, and I fell deep in love with Tony Long watching this film. <laughs> yeah, which, which says a lot about us at the GGTMC. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm the same way. I think I fell in love with Tony Lung. <laughs> yeah, well, he's the kind of guy. He's that. He's that classic example of guys admire him because he's cool and he's he hits all the right notes without with with it always remaining effortless. And girls love him because he's sweet. And he's got a, just enough vulnerability. Right. Yeah. So he. Uh, but yeah, I mean that the kind of pixieish look and stuff. And yeah, she does have some. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, she does have some pasty legs. She's got a very pasty complexion altogether. I mean, she's sweet in the movie. I mean, she is certainly sweet in the she's movie. She's very sweet in the movie, and I can see where somebody could fall in love with her. And she does look really nice when she comes uh, later on with longer hair. That's, that's oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're I know, exactly. I mean, she's, not a, she's not an unattractive woman. I just no. don't really care for the pixie hairdo. In fact, she's beautiful when you see her with longer hair. I'm just, yeah, I'm not really down with the pixie hair either. But um, my last one is, <clears throat> like a lot of filmmakers I really love, uh, specifically Almodovar. Wong Kar Wai has a great respect for his female characters. They never seem broad stroke or assuming what females are. He seems to be in touch with his female characters. Yeah. So. I mean, it's yeah. obvious to me that Wong Kar Wai is a, is a hopeless romantic. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, that's op- it's obvious to me, which is nice because, again, like I say, you know, I had this other interpretation of him judging from, you know, your taste in movies and stuff like that. But now I kind of have a different, uh, different, uh, a different feeling toward him. I mean, I knew he liked uh, romance and cinema, but I didn't think. I always thought it was kind of like uh, Tarantino's romance, which was always 
it's there, but it's, you know, the gun's there too. So, but now, yeah. <laughs> now I get yeah. a different feeling from it, which is really nice. Oh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. So I guess without further ado. Okay. Uh, we'll see here. Where's my note? There they are. Uh, my make or break. I'm going to go with uh, the sequences of the Fei Wong in the apartment. I really love those kind of childlike moments of glee, as you know. Yeah. I'm a big fan of those in film. And uh, I really love hers, especially because she's, she's she is this very childlike character. Very very simple girl and that's not an insult i mean she just kind of you know she 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 has this place to go to be herself you know i I think she doesn't feel like herself when she's working or anything like that so i think she goes there to be herself because you know we're always ourselves in our in our house right you know that's where Mm -hmm. that's where we're most comfortable and you know pajama pants t-shirt you know, chilling, doing whatever you like to do, and then when people come over, you sometimes might hide some of those things. Yeah, exactly. The, the mask comes up a little bit. The, the armor comes up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I really like those moments where it really feels like her and, and stuff. And, and, I, and there's also a moment of shock, too, for me. I was actually surprised that I was so shocked at one moment when these two characters run into each other. <clears throat> oh, yes. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, I wasn't expecting it. It just came out of nowhere. It was almost like a horror movie, you know? <laughs> Surprising. My uh, MVT is going to be Wong Kar Wai. Uh, I got to give it to him, even though I do like Tony Long a lot in this film, and even Faye Wong a lot in this film. Uh, Kenneshiro and Bridget Lin I like a lot too, but it's a different feel than the way I felt about the back end of the film. The back end of the film, I turned into a hopeless romantic and was really getting into it, you know. So yeah, well that's fair. So I have to give it to Wong Kar Wai because I really like the the style of the movie, the way it's paced. It's it's not you know it's nice and tight, 102 minutes. I mean it's. it's it's very, 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 very solid. Uh, also, I have to say, in other countries, and, and our listeners that live in other countries stuff, uh, I know us here in North America, and I speak for all of North America, us and, and, and you know you up there in Canada, we tend to drink our coffee in mugs. I don't know yeah. why so many other countries drink their coffee in glass, but I'd like to know what other countries do that, because I don't know why I, I, don't know why I will, but for me, it's, it just seems weird to drink seems, coffee out of a glass. <laughs> There's, there's something about it. Every time I see Lung, he, and he drinks it even out of a Coca-Cola paper cup. Yeah. That's just wrong on so many levels. Oh, it is. <laughs> you got to have then, and, and then the 80s, though, they combined the glass and turned it into, like, glass mugs. Oh, God. You know, that's, that's, that's just, that's just, that's just not. Blasphemous. That's just wrong. It's yeah. wrong on so it's many levels. It's a play of some sort. <laughs> yes. Somebody needs to be, you know, fucking drawn and quartered for that shit. <laughs> you know, we like, we like our mugs, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't know why it is, but I can't drink coffee out of anything clear. It's really strange. You know what you just reminded me of when you said that? Oh, God. It was that stupid 80s. I think it was for Folgers when they go, Hugga-mugga, Hugga-mugga. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> what was it for? Folgers or? I think it was Folgers. I think you're right. Hugga-mugga. Fuck, that's going to be in my head all day. Hugga-mugga, Hugga-mugga. Sounds, sounds like a Google search might be in your near future. I think it will be. <laughs> All right, uh, so yeah, Wong Kar Wai, I'm going to give it to him. But This is my first Wong Kar Wai from beginning to end, uh, so maybe I'm giving it to him strictly on those terms, but I, I really do like the film quite a bit, and uh, glad I own it now. Uh, this My score for the film is an 8.25 out of 10. Nice. I really did enjoy this film quite a bit. Totally different than what I thought it was going to be, but totally pleasant ex- viewing experience. And nice, something, something a little different for the GGTMC. Yeah, it is. It's nice to get those kind of breath mints every now and then. Yeah, I mean, you know, no kung fu, no nothing like that. Just you no know, blood, yes, <laughs> other than a few squibs from some yeah. unfortunate Indian double crossers. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
But uh, yeah, see, that's what I'm saying. You watch the beginning of this film, and you think, oh, okay, this is going to be a GGTMC movie. We got you know guns, we got some violence, but you know it turns out to be the opposite of what we typically cover. But no, nah, very very sweet movie. Nice, very nice. Uh, my make or break again. I, I could go with. I mean, when you consider a film in your top ten, it, you could go with a lot of scenes because it means a lot's working for you. Um, but I'm going to go with that airplane slow moment early on. It's or uh, early on in the, the second half of the story, which I do agree. I like the the Long Chuai. Um, Fei Wong's story a little bit better, uh, even though it takes place during the day and the other one takes place primarily at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that airplane slow-mo stuff, it just, it's really great. Uh, my MVT, and this is going to seem odd and it's going to seem like maybe a bit of a cheat, but again, because of, I hold this film in such high regard, um, I have to go the way of all involved. Because to me, when you make a masterpiece, a film that is, is going to stand the test of time, you have to give it to everyone involved. Wong Kar Wai, Christopher Doyle, the actors, uh, you know, everyone who worked behind the scenes, wrote the film, uh, set design. I mean, you have to give it to everyone because without everyone firing on all cylinders, you're not going to get a masterpiece in someone's eyes. Right. So I'm going to give it to all involved. And my score for them is very, very high. But like I said, I consider this to be um, a top 10 for me. And I consider it to be one of the masterpieces of what is otherwise a pretty dark decade for film, that being the 90s. And I'm going to give this one a 9.5, man. Nice. I, I, you know, this is one that, that I, I just I can't express enough how much I love. And it's a film that, in some ways, the score seems to betray how simple a story it is at times. But mm-hmm. the more I think, the more I thought about this film over the years, the more love I had for it. Right. Well, that's the way it is with films that you have a personal attachment to, you know, that you really love. I mean, but this is a, you know, it's not like, you know, like for me, like The Road Warrior. <laughs> it's not like, you know, I mean, I don't know what I, I don't, can't remember what I gave it, but. You know, it's a personal film for me, and I love it unconditionally. You know, so oh, yeah. And I think that's you know the way you feel about this film stuff. So I expected, I I was going to say I expected a nine or higher. So oh, for sure. At the, the very least, I expected a nine. At you have. Moment. I mean, when you get into the top ten, I mean, you and I watch a lot of films. Yeah, I very so, least expected nine. You know, it's it's hard to like. Uh, you know, I'm actually in our message board right now, and I know a lot. There's some films in my top thirty that I wouldn't wouldn't crack nine territory like. The Last Dragon, um, Oh yeah, <laughs> Living Dead. Um, I'm almost done. Uh, Raiders of Atlantis. No. Raiders of Atlantis. Well, that, that <laughs> might it's it's close to the top thirty. It's maybe on the outside looking. Um, uh, no, I understand. I mean, you all know, that heaven allows is just on the outside of a nine looking in. So, but and Lone Wolf and Cub series, those are all films that are in my top thirty, but they're not. Otherwise, I mean, you get the Godfather, Wild Bunch, all those, that stuff's over nine for me for sure. Yeah, I could probably say that there's some films that are in my. If I was actually to do a top thirty, I could probably say there's some. In mind that would probably might even might not even get a six that I love so much, <laughs> but that's just you know my taste in movies you know so yeah. All right, so that's our thoughts on Chunking Express. We're going to take a short break. Come back and talk about feedback. feedback. <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Brian, President and CEO of Movie Meltdown, that silly meandering show that yammers on about movies. And due to an overproduction of ridiculous movies in Hollywood, I am now overstocked with podcasts, and I'm passing the savings on to you! Kill time on the commute, distract yourself from the drone of your work day job, drown out thoughts of your failing relationship, or just completely ignore your bratty children. Whatever your podcast listening needs, Movie Meltdown has it for you! So come on down to the iTunes store or look for us at MovieMeltdown.com. That's Route 2 on the Information Superhighway!
back with feedback. I think that might be a song you sent me like a week before, so I yes. wanted to make sure I used it. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, okay, so uh, we do have some feedback. I think we got a couple emails. Yes, we do. I'll let you read one. I'll read the other. Okay. Uh, first one is from Clay. Uh, first time feedback, Clay from Arkansas. Hey, guys, love the show. I've been listening for a while now and have joined you on Facebook and MISO. I've yet to send in proper feedback. Here goes. First got the show last year with an episode that paired Macon County Line with Kickbox Terminator. The pairing of 70s, Ooh. sweaty, 70s, excuse me, sweaty 70s classic with direct video cheese had me hooked. Not to mention the love of bronze and silver, tough tits and whisker biscuits. <laughs> also identifies a guy in my 30s with a young son. I've often had to choose Dora over Deathwish for the sake of my kid. Oh, yeah. uh, I've been listening to back episodes and in one you asked if listeners had had films shot in their hometown. I have a few that fit in with the GGTMC. I just live outside of Little Rock in Benton, Arkansas. Sling Blade was shot here in Benton, as well as White Lightning. The fight scene from Shotgun Stories was shot outside the Whitewater Tavern in Little Rock. Uh, GGTMC Classic Stone Cold was also shot in Little Rock at the state capitol. Yes. My aunt, who is a nurse, worked on the set. Nice. According to her, the boss was just as sleazy as you would imagine. <laughs> Apparently, he cared more about being oiled up and rubbed down by the nurses than he did about acting. <laughs> That's all I have for now. Thanks for the show and keep up the great work. Uh, he says good work, actually. I trumped it up. <laughs> yeah. I accidentally play. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have it any other way than the boss being more interested in being oiled up and rubbed down than by acting. So Absolutely, man. <laughs> he just seems like the type. <laughs> Certainly does. And if you have that power to uh, to do that, then more power to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, th- that's interesting, a lot of those films that are shot down there. The... Uh, the other thing you mentioned, it's funny that you came in with Kickbox, uh, Kickbox Terminator and uh, Megan County Line. That was, I can't even remember our review of Kickbox Terminator. I vaguely do. I, mean, I can barely remember. I can remember Megan County Line just fine, but I can't remember. I might have to go back and listen to that and see what we actually thought about it. <laughs> Interesting. It was a pretty forgettable movie. I know that. Yeah. Alright, so this one's is uh, from Tom, or Thomas Duke, because he's known over on our our, uh, our forums. I was going to say that because that's what he calls himself over on the forums too. Um, he says, I'm still catching up on old shows and that Stone Cold promo that periodically plays reminds me of a very GGTMC worthy personal story that should cripple me with shame but doesn't. It was the summer 1991 and I walked, into a, a <laughs> and I walked into a barbershop with a magazine, maybe Sports Illustrated, that had a little blurb on the new film Stone Cold. When the barber asked me how I wanted my hair cut, I just showed her a picture of the Boz on the set and pointed at his head. I want it, I want the top to look like that, I told her, <laughs> since a mullet was impossible as I didn't have long hair to begin with. She did the best she could and explained to me how to gel it and blow dry it to maintain my new half boz. I was ready to conquer the world and maybe get run over by Bo Jackson. <laughs> so I also bought some wraparound shades and was ready to rock. However, after going through the long process of gelling and drying my hair a couple times, I stopped. And it quickly became a haggard flat top instead. My one and only attempt at high fashion was a pain in the ass, so I simply gave it up. At least I still had the shades. Oh, well. And then he says, P.S., I swear to God, this is true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we believed you anyway, man. I just think it's funny that, uh, you know, I can remember the summer 91. Summer 91, I had finally gotten out of high school, so, you know, it's it's funny. I don't, I didn't, I was playing a lot of golf at the time. Oh, and nice. I was uh, starting, I was trying to get a band together because I was going to be a rock star, right? So, uh, at least that's what I thought, you know. So, I, I had long hair still. Um, I was into Stone Cold. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, I, you know, I wanted to, you know, have my own guitar licks, you know. Picked up the guitar. I was like, wow, you know, I wanted to walk around doing that kind of stuff. And 
But I can remember that like it was yesterday, man. I can remember I asked the guy that played drums for me. Uh, I asked him while he had a broken foot. We were playing golf when he had a broken foot. He had a cast on. So. Crazy That's times. That's crazy. I was 91. I was, I think, approaching junior high school. Yeah. And I remember that summer I bought a pair. My, I shouldn't say I. I definitely didn't. <laughs> my father bought me a pair of a blue leather uh, Nike Air Flights. That I thought were the fucking cat's ass. Nice, nice. So, there we go. I got That's a cr- great story. And I want to apologize. Thomas, I know he said somewhere on the boards that it felt like maybe I rushed through his wrestling song. And I totally appreciated it. It's just sometimes, you know, we're pinched for time. So please don't ever think that we don't want you guys to write in or email, uh, call us. We, we adore it. It's, it's yes. And we're not trying to, if it ever feels like we're giving you a short shift, please don't feel that way. We, you know, well, yes. the greatest thing is the feedback we get. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't feel that way. Sometimes we just run into time constraints as a matter of fact you'll hear little children here in a little bit on that end i'd imagine and yep and here i just run into the time constraint of trying to get some more sleep in before i go to work today so exactly so this is the way it goes but no no we, we posted that over there and maybe brian sent me a song but i don't know what the lyrics are i can't really and i'm not going to play it today i got to find out what it's for he, he called it ggtmc fetish and this is uh brian from uh hammockus podcast and uh, it's something he did so I know this song, and I, I should say no. I heard it, this song, and it's fantastic. Yes, and I just haven't had a, I just haven't had a reason, uh, not a reason, but I haven't had really had a spot to play it yet. So maybe I'll just close the show out with it next week. Yeah, that'll be a good spot for him. Let's do that, and so we'll go with that. So this O'Brien knows. So that's another situation where somebody sent us something, you know, two weeks old now. I just haven't had a place to play it. So you know, it's just the way it goes. If you ever do a podcast, you'll understand. Trust me. All right, so. Let's get into this. I'd love to see pictures of that uh, Boz, by the way. Tom. Oh, that would have been amazing. All right, here we go. First voicemail from GGTMC Perennial Favorite. Gentlemen, this is Dr. Zom. Um, just want to go over a few things uh, here that uh, I'd like to speak on. Uh, Winnebago Man. I uh, watched it. I had high hopes, and, and, and I, I just it just didn't, uh, it didn't light my fire. Um, Long Good Friday. You know, I'd heard a lot about this movie for quite a while. Um, you know, I know when Sexy Beast came out, they they compared, uh, you know, some of it to that, uh, some of it to, uh, you know, The Craze, and also oh, Villain with uh, Richard Burton. Um, but um, this movie, to me, I mean, it was just, for me, it was just okay. Uh, it really was good. In the last, say, 15 minutes or something like that, 15, 20 minutes, uh, the finale. Uh, but uh, didn't, uh, it, didn't, it didn't light my fire either. So I didn't get my fire lit. Um, other one was called uh, Confederate States of America, CSA, Confederate States of America. Uh, another one, I thought, man, this looks really promising. Didn't light my fire. <laughs> um, now... Okay, another one. Hobo with a shotgun. I couldn't wait to see this. Been waiting and waiting and waiting. I actually had to stop myself from paying like $7.99 on, uh, you know, the, um, on cable to watch it. And I'm glad I did because it uh, didn't light my fire. Uh, I hate yeah. to sound like, I mean, I, you know, I hate to sound like a downer, but they just didn't light my fire. Uh, the next one. Um, that I watched that uh, was a home run. 
Okay. And you people, I don't know if I have any pull or any sway or any influence on anybody. I hope on some things that I don't. (laughs) 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 Hang on a second. Got to get some water. (sighs) The movie is called Expired, uh, made in 2007. Uh, directed by somebody named Cecilia Minnucci, or something like that. Um, it's got uh, Jason Patrick. <laughs> had a mind blank there. there. I had a blank. <laughs> Nobody else that you'll know but Jason Patrick. And let me tell you something, people. I sent out emails to people saying, listen, watch this movie. Yeah, so uh, I recommend it. For me, I mean, I don't know if I'd give it a ten, ten out of ten stars or whatever they how they rate things. But um, this movie is I, I liked it. I watched it this morning, and I'm ready to watch it again. Jason Patrick was so fucking awesome in this movie. If you like Jason Patrick, you watch this movie. If you like funny movies, watch this movie. If you like dark comedy funny movies watch this movie um if you like if you're a chick or you're a guy with a big heart you know empathy and all that stuff you know that's in normal human beings <laughs> watch this movie it's a good movie watch it i hope you i hope someone will watch it and at least give me their feedback and you know if you think it sucks that's great you know whatever but i liked it uh, right now, watching a movie uh, documentary called Training Rules uh, about um, um, homophobia in uh, college athletics, in athletics all around, but uh, basically has to do with uh, uh, kind of the target of it is uh, Penn State's uh, female basketball team, where the coach who was uh, you know really good, uh, you know, and because she was really good, she kind of you know the rules didn't apply. Would tell her players that. Uh, if she found out they were lesbians or if they were hanging out with les- anybody who was a lesbian or whatever, they were off the team, they, she would uh, kick them off uh, and set it up so they couldn't transfer anywhere and all this shit. And so it's pretty good. It's only about an hour long. It's on, uh, it's on Hulu because my Netflix uh, kind of was running like shit when I was trying to watch Deborah Foreman and Sam J. Jones in My Chauffeur. Anyway, that's oh, about nice. it. I just <laughs> want to get something in there at the last minute uh, for you gentlemen because you guys are the shit. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Zom calling from the uh, great state of West Virginia, almost heaven, saying, get spoofed. Zom, <laughs> oot. Nice. He had all kinds of phrases in there. Oh. <laughs> oh, Hello. Yeah, are you there? Yeah, sorry. Braden was uh, <laughs> crawling in the room, and I uh, just put the earphones on him to hear the sweet southern sounds for a minute and see if his mind was blown. <laughs> I had to. I just had to tend to something here. I have he to check out that uh, Jason Patrick uh, movie. Wait, what? Okay, hang on. Watch your daddy. Watch your Okay, I love you. Go see mom. Can you even? Daddy's got a reply too. Can he hear you? Yep. Yep. To Mr. Zom. <laughs> you there? Terribly sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's fine. Oh, hang on. <laughs> you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, my son was calling in the room and just something happened uh, off, yeah. off air, obviously. <laughs> but uh, did you have anything to add to Zom? 
Uh, no, well, I mean, I, I got to check out that Jason Patrick movie. Got to check it I, out. I have it bookmarked. Expired. It's interesting. He brings up the craze. I think we'd like to cover that at some point on the show. Yeah, oh the craze. But yeah, good old Zom. Always, uh, always watching a lot of movies. Yeah, he does. He he, he watches some junky stuff. That... Got to get there. Got to get to get the get a horror hound. You got to get there, Dom. You got to get there, buddy. Yes, to. You got to make the trek. Yes. All right. Uh, next voicemail. Here we go. Hey guys, it's Rube. Um. I meant to mention this on the show that I was just on, um, but I forgot. And and not to, you know, be too, um, you know, violent about it or anything. But uh, <laughs> but I I really I just have to slight, take slight issue with the the comments you guys are making about Amber Heard in um, in Drive Angry. Um, I couldn't disagree more uh, respectfully. Uh, I think she's smoking hot in the movie. Uh, my wife uh, agrees, uh, and uh, it's, I just, my mind is sort of blown that you guys totally were not, you know, digging the way she looked in the movie. I think that's as hot as she's ever looked. What? Um, I, I, I can't take any issue with your reaction to the movie, though. I actually enjoyed it more than you guys did. Um, it's just the most weird, silly mess. Uh, anyway, you know. And it's 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 a, you know it's a half to three quarter cage I think I said and it's pretty fun but anyway <laughs> just couldn't get around this you guys talking about her outfits and stuff which was kind of funny um, but yeah I just couldn't disagree more I I want to know if there's more listeners out there that um, I mean I'm I'm not the kind of guy that that talks about girls looking hot in movies that much but I was I was just struck by how uh, gorgeous I thought she was in that movie so. Uh, I'd love to hear our listeners respond to uh, to what you guys uh, thought of that. And um, I know we gave Sin Awesome a little plug uh, on the uh, uh, show that I was just on, but uh, I'm listening to the Seagal episode right now, and i got to say, you guys got to check it out. It's pretty, pretty awesome. James <laughs> does a really, really hilarious imitation of um, Steven Seagal's death, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> in uh, Executive in Action. And it's really fucking funny. It made me laugh quite a bit. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to imitate it. I think you should just listen to the show. Hopefully it'll make you laugh, too. Anyway, um, good stuff, guys, as always. I will uh, be talking to you soon. Bye. Oh, is a date. Not to be too violent about it. I like how you said that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was funny. I think we both said she was attractive, but that the... Daisy Dukes she was wearing were inex- inexcusably baggy <laughs> and that she tried to butch her character up to make her seem tougher and it seemed forced. We never said she wasn't beautiful. And here's something that goes in your face, Roop. No one else has called in to back you up yet. <laughs> yeah. so there, not, yet, right? not yet. But of course, you know, he, well, he, this is the first time we played his voicemail. But, so. but no one took offense enough to call in. So there. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, I, I'd be interested. With, I think she was, uh, I do think she was smoking hot in uh, Mandy Lane. I do think. Yeah, she was. I she think was she, hot. I, I, think I think she's, she's a pretty a gorgeous girl. creature, yeah. man. Oh, yeah, she's pretty. She's beautiful. I just think my problem was also all the nudity in Drive Angry. You know, if you're going to cast your lead, you know, cast a lead that's willing to take her clothes off. Because, I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, everybody else is getting naked but your lead. That's just not the That's not the kind of movie that is. It's like, yeah, to me, that kind of smells of, uh, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a star. I don't have to take my clothes off. Yeah, it's uh, and I said beautiful creature that sounded worse than it looks in fine print usually. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a beautiful she's a be- specimen. <laughs> beautiful specimen, certainly. Yes. But 
Ah, Just she didn't do it for me in that movie either. So no. and the baggy Daisy Dukes don't help. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah, they don't. No, no, no definition in the Daisy Dukes. Nicholas Cage's uh-huh. leather pants were tighter. Yeah, his I, Hulk Hogan hair was in full effect. I caught myself checking out Cage's ass more than I did Amber Heard's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. Uh, all right, so here we go. Next voicemail. We'll get a couple more in. <laughs> Hello, man. This is the Bryn. So. The wife and the family are away to Hawaii. I did not go because um, I would have had to pay for my own plane ticket. I could not afford it, so I am here researching films and writing scripts and stuff like that. So uh, 25 years ago was the summer of 1986, and Cobra was released. And so I've been doing a bit of research on that. And apparently um, Stallone was offered Beverly Hills Cop, um, and with all his changes to the script and uh, rewrites and making it a lot darker, they decided to to make to, to change that script into Cobra and change Beverly Hills Cop and give it to Eddie Murphy. So that was interesting. So that led me on to E.T. And uh, E.T., before it was released, they uh, started to write E.T. 2. Uh, and actually, E.T. 2 was going to be evil E.T. was going to come down and be evil. They decided that that was maybe going to be a bit too rough, but since E.T. was so so special when it uh, was released, so um, E.T. 2 was actually then split into two uh, films, and E.T. 2 actually became Evil E.T., became Poltergeist, and the good parts, elements of E.T. 2 became uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So isn't that interesting for some film knowledge? So, so anyway, happy days. Loving the show as always. Thought I'd call in because I haven't spoken on the phone for a while. All right, well, hurrah, ta bye-bye. I think it's interesting that, you know, that's what you do when you're, nobody's around. So you just start, you know, you go down the wormhole of either, you know, movie research or music research or porn, depending on your taste. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're calling a podcast saying, hey, you know what I just found out? You know, it's... <laughs> But yeah, we knew that about uh, Cobra. I think we, I think we, we made. Yeah, we did. We mentioned it in the review. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know that about ET as well. I knew that Spielberg wanted to make a a dark ET sequel, which was just really odd for him if you consider that time frame of what he was making at that time. It would would have been really really odd, you know, to come back with a film that every kid loves, especially every kid of our generations. I mean, Jesus, it's like a seminal childhood film, you know, to come back with an evil ET. <laughs> Oh yeah, would have been. Oh, I know. Would have been. It would have destroyed so many children's lives. <laughs> yeah, it would have really pulled the rug out, man. I'm glad they they yanked that one out before yeah. it started. But I, I knew that that was the route, and truthfully, I'd only known that uh, after hearing Miles and Katie talk about it. But I didn't know to take it one step further that the good stuff became Close Encounters and the bad stuff was Poltergeist. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It broke off that way. Very, very interesting. All right, yes. uh, we'll just do one more today, and then we'll uh, call it a day. Because we're approaching our cutoff time at 9 o'clock. And it's just a little yes. bit now. So we'll do this one here, and we'll call it a day. Hey, gents. It's Emily. I had to call since Rick kind of baited me with the old, <laughs> Emily loves a good werewolf movie. Um, <laughs> as I know, he knows. I generally do not. Um, and I think you, I mean, you talked a lot about it, and I'm not one to normally, you know, genderize films, but I completely agree. I think it's a very male subgenre. And it's, you know, not because it's, horror-related or anything like that, but just, I don't know, I... My problem with werewolf cinema is that it's generally... Aside from the fact that werewolves usually look stupid on film, um, I just think it's so simplistic. I get it, okay? It's repressed males 
sexual aggression. Great. What else are you going to do with it? Not what else can do with it. And because I think it is such a weak monster, it usually ends up making the movies fall really flat for me. Um, exceptions being, uh, I guess, dog soldiers. And part of the thing I liked about it was that it it got that sense of werewolves being really male. Um, so there's this, you know, kind of miniature line of misogyny running through there regarding the female character, and I think that works. I don't, but at the same time, it stays kind of limited to me. But it it can work. It just doesn't ever wow me. Um, I did like what Ginger Snaps did with it, just because it was different. But I don't think there's much more you can do with it. Because Company of Wolves did kind of the same thing. Werewolves, either I guess either female period or male sexual aggression. Um, and it reminds me in a way, um, when we talked about Straw Dogs on Carl's on film, but it was never played, uh, is I had the same question regarding those kinds of, like, violent revenge films. And this a sense of aggression in that film and how it's such a, is it a male thing? I've never in my life had the urge to punch someone or to actually commit violence against someone. Is that just because I'm me or because uh, it's a little more of a male thing? I don't know. Uh, but just curious about that and enjoyed your discussion of The Howlings. I really like the movie, but again, I think it's really is a matter of is it personal taste or is it a genderized taste? I don't know. I'd be curious if other female listeners feel the same. That's really all. I'm talking a lot, so I'll go. <laughs> all right. She wrapped it up quick there toward the end. You know, it, it is, I, I do think it's a gender thing. I, I really do. I do think uh, men identify more with werewolves than females do. Mm-hmm. I just think it's that male sexuality thing. I don't think well, it's a bad me. thing. I think that I actually believe this is me, and I'm not saying everybody's like this. I believe females identify more with vampires than men do. For sure they do, because I think vampires are more cat, uh, cat-like and werewolves are more dog-like, which is... Cats yeah. or girls, boys yeah. or dogs. Yeah, maybe, you know the, the 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 saying "men or dogs" is uh, you know there's a reason why that exists, and I do believe. Yeah, you can't explain. I can give you this: when I turned to start to be a teenager, when testosterone really starts kicking in in the male libido, uh, I did have urges to punch people. <laughs> yeah. Whereas before, when I was a kid, I never really had that urge. So I can't explain. Men are violent by nature. Uh, uh, you know, we, we we refrain from violence if we're you know civilized and and nice people. But a lot of men, you know, they'll resort to violence if they can't get something done their way. And it's sometimes it's a shame. Uh, sometimes it's necessary. I guess if you want to say like wars and things like that. Whoa! Mm-hmm. I just got a I just got a steel photograph of Brian Thompson from Cobra kissing Oliver Reed. Jesus! I don't know if I want to see that. It's early in the morning. <laughs> Well, I do know that I will be sending it to you at some point. I can tell you that. <laughs> wow. How does that happen? Whoa. <laughs> and Ollie, there's that one film where he wrestled naked with, uh, on a polar uh, polar bear rug, Fireside, uh, with the guy that was in The Shout um, that looks ironically a bit like him. Say uh, More interestingly, never, never mind, never mind. Uh, well, Oliver Reed has a pickle loaf mustache in this film. <laughs> Oh man! Nice. He puts the pickle in pickle loaf. Wow. Or he put the pickle in the loaf. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, yeah, but I think you know, there's a, there's a lot that can be talked about there. I mean, it's a bigger conversation than we have time for, but there's a lot of conversation there. I, I don't think all werewolf movies are good, though. I think there's a ton of bad ones, just like any oh. kind of monster. I think the ones that are good hit on those things really well. American Werewolf, The Howling, uh, the original Wolfman, uh, the Oliver Reed Wolfman. Uh, I think it's called Curse of the Werewolf. 
Uh, or maybe that's the Henry Hall one. I can't remember. But uh, the ones that hit on it good, Teen Wolf even hits on it good because it deals, yeah, it with, uh, deals with puberty and things. Mm-hmm. So Much like Ginger Snaps. Yeah, Ginger Snaps is good, too. That takes a female slant on it. But, I mean, it, it all the, when it works, it works. But the problem is, is there's about 9,000 of them that don't work. I, although, I will say there's one that's really bad and cheesy. Emily, you might want to check out. It's called Big Bad Wolf, and it's got Richard Tyson in it playing a werewolf. But he's a shit-talking werewolf. So, like, when he turns into a werewolf, he still has the human characteristics saying, yo, dude. <laughs> so, definitely check that one out. It's awful and probably right up her alley because I know what kind of cinema she likes. All right. So, that is all the feedback. Large William, pleasantries. And that film is called Hired to Kill with Ollie Reed. And, uh, Hired to Kiss, more like Just it. go to one of our favorite websites when you get a chance and oh, check that out. Yeah. I think I'll do that right now. Just <laughs> why not? Yeah, it's it's worth it. <laughs> um. Whorehound is rapidly approaching, mm-hmm. um, so everyone needs to get there as best they can. Planes, trains, automobiles, however they see fit. Um, check out our sister shows, Show Show and OTC. All of our friends over at palover.com. Check out Hammockus, where I will be on this week. Sana Awesome, where Sam will be on this week. Yes. Check out Paleo Cinema, where Sam will be on this week. Uh, <laughs> Married with Clickers, uh, where the wonderful Toronto married couple... Scott and Cat will be on uh, Action Attraction, Better in the Dark, V Cinema, uh, where coincidentally John from there will be on our show soon enough. Uh, so there you have it. Podcast about Iron Humanity and the Criterion Cast. Check out Paracinema.net for our favorite magazine power couple in the NYC, Dylan and Christine. Um, check out NameOurTheater.blip.tv. WeAreYoungMonster.com. These are all .blogspot.com. That is the GGTMC, Rupert Pupkin Speaks, uh, Deadly Dolls House, Chuck Norris Ain't My Baby, Fist of B-List, Playground of Doom, Scared Shiftless and Shasta, Moon in the Gutter, Wax Mask. And the following are not .blogspot.com. That's deathrattle.net, lightningbugslayer.com, cinemasatory.wordpress.com, and of course diabolicdvd.com, where our films today were kindly given to us through. Uh, CDB, cinema-de-bazaar, I think the next time I have a pick that's not um, tied to anything, I'll go with something from them, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, promo code GENTLEMAN for 10% off the order. OMG-Entertainment.com, GGTMC10 for 10% off the order. And the Mighty Camera Obscura. Now, beyond that, we have Facebook. You can friend us all, join the discussion, get in all the fun. Twitter.com, backslash GGTMC, Large William, Uncool Cat, Bob Freelander, Pickleloaf. Um, uncool Cat, I don't know if I said that. And Aaron still doesn't have a Twitter. I have to say about the Twitter thing, I haven't been Twittering as much as usual, usual but I've been so busy. So oh, for those of you that you know follow me and stuff, and I'm still there. I just haven't been Twittering as much as possible lately because I just uh, you just wouldn't Oof. believe the insanity that's going on <laughs> away from the cell phone. Yeah. Ah, oh, God, I just saw that picture. He's got a fucking brandy <laughs> or cognac in his hand. Yeah. Jesus, why is that happening in this film? <laughs> Again, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I don't want to see... Oh, wow. Uh, you don't want to see it, but this film just jumped up my must-see list. <laughs> yeah. No kidding, man. Wow. Check out Ollie's, uh, check out Ollie's mustache, man. That is, that is a Lofian mustache. Loaf would be um, quite proud of that, I think. It's a think brother need, in the mustache. I need, club. I need to get that picture and put it on the Facebook. We need to put that on the Facebook group at some point. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. Absolutely, yikes. Uh. Um, uh, finally, I will say iTunes and uh, donate. We have a donate button. Should you do to donate to us? Yes, there's been and, a couple uh, donations lately. Thank you very much. 
please leave us reviews on iTunes. Yeah, we'd like to we'd like to get up to hundred reviews. We're up to like uh, high sixties, seventies, maybe. We'd like to get up about a hundred. I'd like to get up to hundred just for a personal goal. Yeah, it'd be nice. I, I think it would. Oh. Whoa, we almost forgot. We're going to do the Machine Gun McCain giveaway before we get off the air. <laughs> We're Yikes. notorious for getting things. We're like the Let's, goldfish in Tony Lung's apartment. We are. Let's do that now, uh, very quickly. Diabolic DVD contest. Okay, I'm going to ask my wife because she's right beside me. Pick a number between. Don't look at the screen. Pick a number between one and five. Four. Oh, nice. Okay, so Michael Koopmans, you are the winner of Machine Gun McCain, the Blue Underground Edition. Nice. Uh, courtesy of Diabolic DVD. Send us your details, and we will mail it out. Also courtesy of your wife. Yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we we couldn't have done it without you, baby. <laughs> so, okay. Nice. So there we go. And we got another DVD. I got an extra DVD from the film movement, Colors of the Mountain, that I'll be giving away in the upcoming weeks. So uh, there you go. So good, uh, good on that. Now, can we get into what we're covering next week? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Program for Japan is back. It is... The mighty Carl Bresden's turn, and that of course means we're going to be getting into Bolo Young and Drag <laughs> in 1991's Breathing on Fire, mm. and Night Warning from 1983 with Bo Svensson and a young Bill Paxton. Nice. So there you have it, folks. Program for Japan moves on. Yes, indeed. All right, so that is the big show, man. And I guess with that, we will stay. Um, yeah, we'll say adios. Adios. Mm-hmm.